It's good to be home. I've returned from my travels from Los Angeles, and I got four episodes recorded down there. I wanted to do a few more, but they didn't all, all the interviews didn't quite work out scheduling wise, which is all right. Um, I had some great conversations and some upcoming episodes you'll be hearing is from my friend Alexander Sharon. We talked about holistic healing and uh, with plants and herbs. We talked about Ayurveda and some different medical systems from different cultures throughout the world. I had a conversation with Dee Dussault, the author of Ganja Yoga. We talked about her practice of cannabis-enhanced yoga, and uh, also talked about psychedelics, one of my favorite topics, of course. And I had a conversation with my friends Rob and Amanda about their polyamorous relationship, and we talked about the differences between polyamory and open relationship, or at least their definitions of such and um, alternative relationship styles which was fun so those are some upcoming episodes you can look forward to in the coming weeks i'm a little bit late in getting this episode out i found myself without internet and without the time really to finish as i was traveling so it's coming to you a few days late this week but i'll have the next episode out on sunday as as usual So before I get to the topic of this episode, I want to tell you about some ways you can support the podcast. I run this whole podcast by myself. Um, I pay for all the hosting, the equipment, the scheduling. I do everything, all all the, everything it takes to put it on one man show. And if you like the content that I produce and you want to support me, you can donate to my Patreon, which you can find at patreon.com. P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash chronicles of a psychonaut. You can find that link in the video description. And even small dollar dollar donations help. Uh, Every little bit helps, especially if every listener donates a little bit. really helps me out a lot. So I appreciate those of you who take it upon yourselves to do that. And I also have an Etsy store. That's my main source of income. It's called Infinity Within. And uh, for the months of November and December, I'm having a holiday sale, 15% off all jewelry. I have beautiful silver bezel jewelry. I'm having a new Moldavite order that's going to be coming in. I don't know when I'll get them online, but as soon as possible. Uh, so if you want to pick up a gift for yourself or someone else, you can find uh, that discount there. So go to my shop. It's etsy.com slash shop slash infinity within and use the code word holiday, H-O-L-I-D-A-Y, holiday at checkout for 15% off. And you can also help me by liking and subscribing to all my social media pages, YouTube, find me on Facebook and Instagram at Chronicles of a Psychonaut and YouTube as well. Those things help also. So thanks for that. Um, In terms of the podcast moving forward, I'm going to start reaching out to advertisers and find some sponsors. I think that's the most viable way to 
um, make this podcast sustainable financially. I love the idea of being ad free and just running off of my Patreon or dollar donations, but you know, I think that the ad, that the ad revenue is actually more the reasonable way. So I tried it out for a bit. Um, so that's probably where the podcast is going to go. And, um, so I'm only going to be running ads for things that I have tried and liked. So that's something that's important to me. Um, if you're someone who wants to sponsor the podcast, then, uh, shoot me a DM on Instagram. Um, and we can talk. So now onto the topic of this episode. This is one of my favorite episodes that I've ever done. It was super fun. Um, I was in LA just to record with some other people, interviews I had set up and a friend of mine, uh, Chris Hall got in touch with me and said that he's having an engagement party and would love for me to come. So we also set up a podcast episode to do while I was down there too. And, um, went to his party and saw some of the old guys. These are friends from my former fraternity in college at Chico state. And, um, it was college, but I feel like I grew up with these guys because that those were really formative years of my life. And so in this episode, you get to hear also some more background story about me. Um, and about my younger years from 18 to 22 and how my, my experience being in a fraternity and a men's group was sort of surprising for me. And that truthfully it was for a lot of the guys in our group who were an unusual group as far as fraternities go. So I wanted to do an episode to talk about fraternities or men's groups, um, and brotherhood and things of that nature, uh, in particular with some of the guys that I had been through that experience with, because it's unusual, I think, compared to what most people think of fraternities. And, um, so we, we talk about that. And then we also talk about psychedelics and, um, politics in the end. Actually had a really rich and really good political conversation. The whole the whole thing was great throughout. So, thanks to these guys. Uh, Chris Hall is one fine gentleman, and the other gentleman is Matt Kosh. And so, with that, I'll cue the music. This intro music is from Chris. He's a musician, and you can find. Um, I think he's going to give me a link to put in the description. So. You can find all kinds of good stuff in the description. All right, be back in a moment. Take a good look around you. Tell me what do you see? Is your glass almost empty? Or do you have what you down here in LA on a Sunday afternoon with two old friends of mine. And today we're going to be talking about brotherhood and our fraternal experiences being a fraternity at Chico State some years ago. 
I'm here with Chris Hall. Say hello. Why, hello there. And Matt Kosh. Great to be with you. Yeah. And you guys both reached out to me and said that you listened to my podcast and liked it. And I appreciate those comments. And I was down here anyway and um, just thought it'd be fun to just get, get together and uh, maybe talk about some of the old times and some of the new times. And uh, we went to Chris's engagement party last night and had some drinks. Congratulations once again. Thank you very much. Yes. And uh, here fun we are. Times. I'm glad you made it. Yeah. It was fun. Now was fun we're having everyone. a few more drinks. We are having a few more drinks. So, um, yeah, today's pretty unscripted, which is how I want it. Sounds fun. We'll just see where we go. But to start, we can talk about... Well, I wanted to talk about my experiences being in a fraternity and hear some of yours because for me, my experiences in our fraternity, I feel like really helped me develop into the man that I am. And I had unexpe- I, I didn't expect that, like going into college, I had a certain idea of what fraternities were and that th- I didn't want any part of that, yeah. uh, just like party groups and douche guys and <laughs> bro sacks and whatever. And, um, but yeah, I ended up just going to a party down at the Rio Chico house, which was our old fraternity house and meeting a few nice fellows and, um, just found out that they were in a fraternity. I'm going to scoot up my chair here. And, um, that basically everyone was just, a just like regular guys that like to hang out and have a good time and party, of course, but also, um, well, the, mo- the, the first line of the motto of the fraternity is our goal is to build better men. And I liked that. And that um, there were several points to how we would achieve that. And yeah, we, like, I went to Chico State because I was kind of a nerd and I felt like I didn't really have a lot of social skills and I wanted to go to a more social school. Chico is known as a party <laughs> school. So I was like, I'm going to college to learn social skills. So known I can talk to, to people. Be social. Yeah. Known to be <laughs> social is a That's good a way to put it. it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it was fun to be a part of a, a group that of social guys and, and yeah, just sort of experience camaraderie in a way that I hadn't really before at that point in my life. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of the same for me. I feel like I did have a lot of that camaraderie in a high school and even in the beginning of college before I joined a fraternity, but it kind of extended that. And, um, a lot of my friends I would say were pretty similar to me. So it was nice. The fraternity kind of brought a bigger group together. Mm-hmm. Um, different kinds of people and kind of joined us together. Um, a large group of my friends were in it as well, like close friends. But um, then you also had people who were maybe not close friends, but um, you like gained a bond with mm-hmm. and that kind of carried over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we had a lot of diverse personalities. We had kind of nerdy folks like myself and other more athletic folks and you know, go along the line of stereotypes we had one of one of each at least and um but it, and not everyone really 
like got along famously, but everyone was respectful with everyone. And we all had just this, you know, common, common thing we were doing. But I guess the reason I wanted to talk about it is just, I feel like I had a very unusual experience and, um, and I got a lot of value in an arena, an area of life that I didn't expect. And just being, being in this men's group and, um, and yeah, we had, you know, we had an executive board, we had meetings, we had planned events. Um, we took leadership roles in school and then the, um, basically the Greek council and interacted with the school in deeper ways. And it was just cool to actually get an opportunity to embody leadership roles and like run for positions within the fraternity and take on more responsibility and just kind of get some life experience in that way and to do it for the benefit of yourself and your friends and your group. I feel like it got me out of my comfort zone in a lot of ways. When I went to college, I didn't even really know what a fraternity was. I had barely even like heard of the concept, but I was a skateboarder kid in high school and uh, it was not something that I wanted to be a part of. Uh, just when I did get there, I was like, I don't know about all this. Mm-hmm. But What changed your mind? <clears throat> similar story to you. Um, well, it was uh, Tommy and Nick, our buddies that lived across the hall from me in the dorm that I just met when I got up there. They heard about rush events or pre-rush events um which is kind of like recruitment the rio chico house and uh before the real rush starts you can drink you know you can go to the house and hang out and actually like meet people in a social situation rush week is dry i think right yeah but yeah so i guess just supposedly just getting yeah right officially just getting a taste of um of that just meeting some interesting older guys that have been there for a little bit and had a something established already that looked really fun i just Mm -hmm. you know i was reluctant but uh yeah i ended up liking it a lot more than i ever would have thought Mm -hmm. yeah and there was definitely some like the older members would kind of look after the younger members and as you know if they liked them and kind of take them under their wing show them show them a few things and um, we had a we also had big brothers and little brothers and uh kosh is my big brother oh, yeah. i kind of forgot about that did you oh <laughs> yeah. yeah yes yes okay and so the idea behind that is the big brother is somebody who's already in the fraternity and the little brother is someone who's pledging or joining during that semester and um the big brother well basically there's a separation between the pledges and the actives just sort of in, in terms of what the the pledges get to know and have access to because they're still in the 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 joining process and haven't been initiated yet. They haven't learned all the secrets and mysteries yet. Exactly, they're in the process. And technically they might not finish that process, so they want to make sure you complete that. Exactly, yeah, because the fraternity has to vote essentially whether to accept each member or not. And we were pretty chill like <laughs> people had to really be terrible to the, i mean not not s- like basically there was s- certain uh benchmarks or we we had to feel fairly confident that you were c- going to contribute to the mm-hmm. organization and as long as you did your things then you know you and people didn't hate you then you would get in yeah there was a minimum level you had to achieve but it 
if you wanted to achieve it, you could achieve it. Yeah, but still, plenty of people did not achieve it. Uh, we weren't just like a you know anyone yeah. come in. I mean, it is actually a lot of work when you think about it. Sure, yeah, your schedule is very filled up. Yeah, and that's actually one major thing I learned as a pledge was just time management Absolutely. skills. You have to because just on top of your schoolwork and obviously you want to have fun. And then all the fraternity events, which they definitely load you up with quite a bit of stuff to do. You have to, you either have to manage your time well, or something is going to give way. So it kind of actually kicked me into like a higher gear of productivity than I had ever known previously. Yeah, I agree. And that's kind of, I mean, I kind of joined in kind of the group mentality of a bunch of my friends from the dorms were doing it. So mm -hmm. um, I knew some of the older guys cause I knew like Chris and Tommy and stuff. Um, but even Chris and Tommy weren't super involved at that point, but um, they got us to go to rush week cause my friends were doing it. It was free food and you know, stuff like that. And um, I kind of went into the process kind of not even sure it was something I wanted to do, but um, I kind of immediately took a leadership role in it and the, like you said, with like the kickstarting, like that kind of motivated me to do more leadership stuff and to realize, wait, you know, I can be more and do more in these areas and things like that, mm -hmm. um, that I didn't really even think of was a possibility with those things. I thought it was just like the partying aspect, which obviously we did some of, but even my, you know, my friends that weren't, in the <laughs> my friends that so weren't in the fraternities, uh, it's not like they sat at home and, you know, did homework yeah. every night, you know what I'm saying? Everyone partied in Chico. Exactly. Yeah. But it, it gave a chance to uh, mix that fun times with, you know, the leadership roles and um, community stuff you can do with it. And that was actually something that did stand out to me and impress me about the fraternity and some members in particular mm -hmm. were, were that like they would party and ha we would have a good time, but they would still pass all the classes or make the Dean's list even, and have all these responsibilities. And, you know, they knew how to, yeah. Chris, got, Chris. Chris did very well in school. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think I, I really learned, I really prided myself on that. Uh, you know, as silly as it was, I, I never wanted to feel like my, my letting loose was seriously going to like, impact the reason i was actually at school because mm -hmm. we all saw that happen to a lot of people especially at that school it happened to me <laughs> really yeah that surprises me actually but uh yeah well i uh did i had i struggled to find the subject that i wanted to study and i a lot of classes i didn't like and i just decided to not go and that would result in f's wow yeah. Yeah. that's not because of part i mean i think my first couple years i struggled with the same thing of and it's not necessarily the partying that held you back. It's just the uh, finding your place in like maturing and stuff like that, maybe. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was in college to learn, not to get good grades. Mm -hmm. I actually didn't care or I didn't even believe that it mattered. I felt like the degree mattered, but the GPA didn't matter. You never have to talk about your GPA ever in your life yeah. after college. Yeah. yeah. And I, got, I finished school. I got a degree. It took me five years instead of four Took but that fifth year was really fun yeah i mean <laughs> so, same thing with, i did i did the fun fifth too yeah i really liked school though I, I didn't always love school as a kid like in high school i sort of just couldn't be bothered with it but i really enjoyed college those classes i liked learning about psychology and anthropology and like, all these yeah. things that i had never 
learned about and it all made a lot of sense and it all tied in together i noticed in general ed like your psych classes sort of overlap with other ones and you start to i don't know i feel like you start to understand more about how the world works i guess mm-hmm. and i really just started to enjoy it at that point mm-hmm. but also very social uh having a full social calendar yeah, yeah. i mean i think i started doing better in school once i more concentrated on the learning aspect of it instead of just like the grade aspect and you know doing that when i was actually like okay what can i take out of here and right. it just naturally translated to better grades i don't know absolutely yeah are, are there any experiences that you had in the fraternity or in college that would that are kind of standout experiences um chris i know you were the you were the herald and right yeah <laughs> i forgot about that and kosh you were the treasurer right um i was or the secretary i was a lot of things um, i was treasurer things. i was vice president and warden Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, so yeah. I, I, a and big I, and I was the treasurer yeah. once. A big thing for me was um, when we were pledging, and um, you guys were both around for this too. Is we were actually a local fraternity, so I don't know if you want to explain that to them or the difference. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, pretty much, we were a chapter that was only at our school, not in multiple different universities. And a goal of ours was to become a national fraternity, which you know has different chapters in different fraternities and at uh, different locations and has like a national council that gives you support and things like that so um you know from the point i pledged on until um my i believe second full year in the fraternity when we became national that was pretty much our focus and our goal besides like you know school-wide events and things like that so uh, my first year as an active, I was treasurer. That's when you were the year you were pledging, mm-hmm. um, and so we were always trying to you know raise money and pretty much um, boost our numbers, is how they would say it. So we had enough to make us attractive to a national fraternity. Mm-hmm. So to do that, you know, we had to like market ourselves, have fun events, but also like community outreach, things like that that other people would uh, be interested philanthropy in. Philanthropy, philanthropy, yeah. yep. Mm-hmm. And then. Um, my uh, second full year in the fraternity, I was the vice president as we were becoming national. And that was just like a coronation nightmare. <laughs> um, the same year we moved into a fraternity house downtown. It was such an exciting year because we got that house in the primo spot downtown. And it was, well, when we got it, it was a very nice looking house. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, the yeah, there was so much fun stuff happening. And the whole going national thing was just so exciting. Yeah, it's like it was one of those everything happens at once kind of things. Um, and like, you know, I didn't live, I lived right next to the fraternity house in a pretty cool location downtown too. Um, there was constantly stuff going on um, everywhere kind of thing. Yeah. But um, even I look back now, if people ask me like, you know, what kind of things can you take from the fraternity and stuff like that? Um, being able to do what we did as a group and bring this small little local fraternity up to a highly regarded national fraternity is something I'm very proud of. And I still kind of look back at it and gives me, um, I don't know about motivation, but confidence maybe that um, we can, you know, you can do what you want, it's get a, a goal. It's a big thing to do at that age. I think mm-hmm. it's almost like we started a business and then you know, sold it to a bigger business or something like that. Yeah. While still uh, keeping our social engagements, uh, right on track. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, We were anywhere from 18 to 22 and yeah, like coordinating on major levels and, and yeah, just, and, and we were growing rapidly. I mean, by the time we were national, we were pretty close to 50. I think we were at 48 or so. Yeah. We're doing really well. And, uh, 
sports and uh, even academically i think we're doing pretty well but i, I think mean, we, we, we started doing a lot better so when we were at the um that was one of the like check marks we had to reach to become national and, and because, i know yeah. at the fine the beginning of fine kai that wasn't a strength of ours but yeah. by the time we were sigma pi i think we were like the second or third uh best gpa in the fraternities um, right and we were brand new so it was kind of interesting to be like the new kids mm-hmm. and we were doing really well and everything um, and we made other people jealous yes we did because we just came straight in and started <laughs> kicking ass That's and they right. were like dude they I really, did not like that. No, they didn't. I really did. Do you think that was a big thing? I don't, I don't think it was a big thing, but definitely people took notice. I definitely, uh, when you guys were saying earlier, I think our fraternity didn't fit the mold. And I think a lot of fraternity guys probably do say this, but <laughs> I truly feel like we did have a very eclectic group of guys and a, just a lot of funny guys and just uh, not your typical prototypical, I guess. And, and one big thing that we always stressed was respect for women, which, you know, is like always important, but especially important today. It's like a big, um, spotlight issue right now. Um, and there, I mean, there definitely were problems with that on campus, not, I mean, in the Greek organizations and outside the, you know, just in general, like alcohol and, uh, yeah, just people getting grabby and handsy and stuff like that. And we were always on the lookout for that. Um, whether it was our guys, which it very rarely was, or usually would be like other mm-hmm. guys that we don't know um, that are just there at a party. We always watch out for the girls. And we had a reputation amongst the sororities, the women's groups, uh, as being like good guys. And yeah. they always felt safe to come to our parties and like nothing bad would ever happen to them at our parties. And I was always proud of that. Um, and it seemed to just kind of happen. It it wasn't like we made a concerted effort at meetings and talked about it as far as I remember. It It was was just just like the culture of it. Yeah. Don't be an (laughs) a-hole. It's very refreshed. I'm, I'm really glad that that was part of it. Me too. Yeah. And I do remember a lot of times like speaking to a lot of like the women in sororities, you know, back then, they would say stuff like that, like, yeah, you guys are just like nice guys and we can like come over and hang out like, you you know, and it just be a fun it's, time and not yeah. have to worry about that other stuff. It's really creepy when you think about the idea of a bunch of guys like trying to be sexually aggressive and even like, you know, drug mm-hmm. Cause that did happen on campus like, For sure. at that other fraternity. Like we heard yeah, about you it. Yeah, you hear about it. Yeah. It's just, uh, I don't know. It's beyond yeah. me. Like, kind of like that mob culture where it's like i mean they get all into it and everybody decides oh yeah but instead of kind of stopping it at the forefront it's not that hard for people to all collectively do the wrong thing sometimes i guess yeah Mm -hmm. but also on the other hand when everyone's doing the right thing and you have like a code of ethics and uh and high standards that because there were times where we would have members that would stray from like our kind of core ethics as a group and we would let them know we'd bring them into line with that and we also had a we had a disciplinary board Mm -hmm. which rarely got used because it didn't we rarely had um times where people would step that far out of line but we did have you know like methods for dealing with that Uh, if anyone got out of line i think a lot of it took care of itself there was a kid in my pledge class who you wouldn't know named travis and i don't even know if you remember remember him him. yeah um and um he would get a little touchy and stuff with girls and 
it was almost handled internally because it'd be, you know, girls that were our friends mm-hmm. and, um, you know, we didn't want that to happen to them. We didn't want them to like, oh, we're not going to your party because you have a guy who's all creepy and touchy with us. Yeah. And, you know, we would handle that internally, yeah. you know, just kind of. And the girls would come to us and say, hey, this guy is like out of line and we'd take care of it. They felt comfortable coming to us. They, they knew yeah. if they came to one of us and said, hey, this is where it's happening. Yeah. We would protect them. It wouldn't. And be- our way of dealing with that guy also, I feel like was balanced. It wasn't like overly aggressive or, you know, like we like would let them know sometimes, sometimes if they're too drunk, you just, you remove them from the party or whatever, but then let them know later like the next day. Yeah. Or, I mean, and, these are eight, these guys are 18, 19 years old. They're growing, they're growing into the people that they're going to be. Um, I don't think many people are a finished product at 18, 19, yeah. kind of, uh, experiment, experimenting with alcohol and, you know, maybe some other drugs and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, it's a learning experience, you know, for everybody involved. So yeah, definitely the first step would be like a discussion, you know, things like that and let them know. But, um, yeah, if it wasn't changing, then they'd be gone yeah yeah we'd kick him out but that i did we ever kick anybody out like an active member i I can't recall i don't think formally but i do believe there were some informal situations Mm -hmm. um where um maybe they weren't kicked out but they weren't welcome anymore yeah 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 like that i think that was a situation with travis is you know i don't think he was ever formally kicked out but it was let him known, hey, you're not going to be invited to these parties if you keep doing this. Okay, you're still doing this. Maybe you shouldn't come around anymore. Yeah, yeah. And I, I really liked that that we had we had those standards and, um, yeah, they, it wasn't really formal. I mean, obviously we did have these sort of agreed upon standards, but um, we would just sort of address it like in the moment. You know, it I wasn't mean, like an overly kind of serious thing that we made a big deal out of. We just. Yeah, I mean, I think with everything that's going on today, that stuff's much more prevalent prevalent, and you see that stuff. And so, I mean, today I, you would have that formal standard. You, Yeah, you would. And But they didn't have, you know, we didn't, I don't think anybody really had those formal standards then, but I think we at least had the awareness that this was an issue that was out there. And I don't even, I don't even know if we had the awareness it was an issue. We just saw stuff that we didn't think was right. And yeah. we'd say something about it. Right. The one thing about all of us in our group was um, we weren't shy about uh, letting our opinions known to each other. Mm-hmm. So um, whether right, wrong, or indifferent, if we you know we thought something, we let that out. Mm-hmm. And that's super important, I think, for men or women, just in general, just to to speak your piece, keep each other keep each other in line, so to speak. Yeah. Do we call yeah. that? Wasn't that ultimate respect? And yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> right. Original text yeah um yeah just the fact that you should be able to say anything to your friend um yeah and even if it's a criticism or you're raising an issue you know it's the right thing to do so yeah and we had kind of a culture of being able to say that and also being heard you know that the it was understood as like hey i got something to say to you like and that that like stand and just listen you know, just listen. Yeah. Um, which retrospectively, I'm kind of surprised us as like, you know, 19, 20 year olds had that, uh, me too. Yeah. (laughs) We didn't have that, uh, patience with a lot of other stuff in our life, I think at that point, but we did have that with each other on that. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and we, uh, we just had a big reunion in the spring, which maybe Chris Hall, did you start that? I think I did. Yeah. Yeah, I think it had been such a long time since I went Over 10 there. years. I mean, I think I went there five years ago with just with Jeff Guerin and, uh, and some other people were there, but it wasn't a big group, and especially a big Southern California Mm-hmm. syndicate like we did we had good numbers this year so yeah because how far did you drive how, we, we flew yeah um, but it's a good distance it's yeah i don't know how far but it's really far it's like a seven hour drive from la it's pretty so much. far yeah i don't know it's more than that it's got to be you drive fast take chances uh, <laughs> oh, i see <laughs> i don't really uh i try not to drive to chico anymore mostly no, for the drive back is just yeah. uh intolerable mm-hmm. yeah but we we had um the largest alumni weekend i think we've ever had definitely mm-hmm and um, I went, I actually came back from Asia a little bit earlier than I might have. That was very impressive. I remember when you told me that. It, well, yeah, I just it was like, it had been 10 years and I hadn't seen some guys in 10 years and who knows when the, if it's gonna happen again. It's definitely not gonna happen again for a little bit. So I wanted to be there. No, we don't have that energy. That, that can't happen too regularly. It was just a. It was a. Uh, it was just a special moment that it came together and yeah. everyone wanted to all go up and made it happen. And yeah, like um, people flew in from who, who? Someone came from Seattle. I remember people came you from didn't all make over. It, did you? I did not make it. I had some some dropouts from Southern California. I think I started the whole thing around Christmas time before that, and I thought I had some more people on board from down here, but. But the reason I bring it up, it was cool to go back to our old chapter and it's still there. It's been through some, some bumps in the road for sure over the years, but it's still there. And it's the chapter that we started that, you know, we, we founded, we were the very first sort of like class of, or the, the founding body of that fraternity and it's still there. And, uh, it was just, it's a little surreal, right? It was surreal for sure. And I, I met some alumni that I had never met before that had been out of school for four years. So they'd gone through the whole school cycle and graduated. And there were just all these different classes. But it, it was cool to introduce myself to, you know, members of that fraternity that I had never met before. And um, they knew my name because we were a part of the founding body. They're like, oh, wow. Uh, you know, I was really surprised that they recognized my name at all. Yeah. Um, they treat you real, really well. They did treat <laughs> us really well. Find out you're a founding father. It's a nice treatment. Yeah. Yeah. Me and another uh, former brother were up in that area a couple of years ago for a wedding. I was telling you this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we decided to make the little extra drive to go there. We just randomly walked up to the house, said our names. They went, yep, I know you. Mm-hmm. Come on inside. What can I do for you? Mm-hmm. It was, mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of a cool treatment. Um, my wife's nephew actually goes to Chico and uh, he's on the Greek system. But um, I told him like, you can go there anytime and just say, I'm your uncle. I'm like, just say my name. They'll know it immediately. Mm-hmm. And he's like, really? I'm like, no, yeah, they, just, they will. They have to, they have to memorize it. <laughs> They'll know it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't know if you guys noticed, I definitely felt um, there was, th- there was a uh, commonality between all of us. We're all brothers of the same fraternity, but definitely different to, hang around with the young kids they've got like i mean the world changes so fast Mm -hmm. you know just five years a five-year change these days is significant i think to previous generations what was your take on some of the differences with the kids or 
or just how or you mean like the fact that they seem so much younger than than you feel <laughs> when you see well, them well that That's for sure thing. but yeah just um the just like the language people use um how they party like there seem to be i don't want to like talk down like what what it just is what it is but there is like there was drug use in our day but there seemed like there was a lot, a lot more drug use now with the younger kids, especially ecstasy or Molly, yeah, really Molly up there now. A lot of Molly, um, different music, more electronic. It wasn't, I'm not saying it was bad. It was just really, it was like, wow. So it was like a completely different. It seems like they youth are culture. turned up a little more uh, turned up. I didn't even mean it like that. I just meant, <laughs> Like the volume knob. I got you. Or maybe that's what turned up is referring to. Yeah, they like to turn up. But no, it did seem like they were raging. But we really, we We, did. We raged, Remember us when we were there? I feel like that's not necessarily true. I mean. Well, you didn't go last time. I was there two years ago. I saw them. It's different now. (laughs) (laughs) It's been two years. Yeah. um, Everything has changed. Everything. Like, I don't know. I mean, we we were, uh, yeah. We, we did it up. as a young 18, 19, 20 year old and 21 year old, we started most of our nights saying like, what's the most we can do tonight? <laughs> and, you know, whether it may be, you know, we weren't necessarily doing drugs and we were just drinking or whatever like that. Um, I do. I think we definitely took it to a youthful extreme at that point. Um, yeah, yeah. Chico, I've heard someone say Chico is a drinking school, not a party school. I mean, it's just well we used to joke that the amount that we drink that like it's all it's socially acceptable because we're all doing it together but at any other school it might be considered an alcoholic i remember i remember when other sigma pi guys Mm -hmm. from other schools would come and they kind of looked at us well the closest well there was a sac state but like berkeley and like those guys would come up and they were like whoa Yeah. yeah, I mean, even um, even nowadays when we get a large group of former Chico um, guys together, I always hear the comments like, you you Chico guys are different. There's just there's something different about, you know, you guys, especially when you guys get together in a group. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like uh, we, we definitely partied in rage, but there was a special there was a special social social culture there. And I felt it last night too, at the engagement party, just like everyone is really nice. I mean, like people, people are, when I say we rage, we weren't like, like we kind of were out of control at times, but um, everybody's very know, welcoming. There, yeah. There was a friendliness and openness and um, in general, people that we didn't know could come to our parties and as long as they were respectful and nice and talk to us and not make trouble, they were welcome, you know? And I mean, that wasn't, there's not a lot of other places like that. I mean, I visited other schools when I was in college and, and yeah, you know, if they didn't know you, you get the suspicious eye, right? I, I definitely for, feel for being there. Yeah. I definitely feel like Chico had this kind of, um, and I wouldn't say just specific to our fraternity, but Chico in general, in general. has this in- inclusivity where, yeah. um, you're part of this. It's almost like, it's almost like a festival kind (laughs) of like, you know, even like, you know, go to Coachella, there's kind of an inclusivity of like, we're all, we're all here together and you know, stuff like that. Um, I feel like Chico had like parts of that. Mm -hmm. You everybody gives everybody the benefit of the doubt up there. It's like a neighborly kind of 
vibe. For yeah, I mean, you, you guys have both seen it. There'd be people from my hometown coming up, like, like you know, five, like ten people, so and it'd many. be like, oh, look, I brought five see me people with us. Bring them in, and now, and suddenly they're best friends with everybody. And you guys know all these people who didn't go to Chico, but just would come up and, weekends. And it's and, everybody's sleeping in the living room together, and yeah. it's it's all fine. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. I'd, I'd walk out of my room every morning, and <laughs> who's like, here now? Who's on my couch? Who's <laughs> tripping over them? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes, yeah, ra- random people would just like. You ever come? Uh, I mean, Kosh, you lived in a place particularly like that where there's just all kinds of people coming through and just random people like i'd come over sometimes and be like hey who's that who's that guy on your couch or you're like there's somebody on my couch just random people sometimes walk in and yeah pretty much constantly um our house was like i guess the annex to the fraternity house and um so anybody thought they could just let anybody into there and sleep over there which was fine we were cool with it but yeah there's definitely many uh a morning when it was two or three a.m. in the morning, and I realized I don't know like twenty, thirty people in my house, and mm. you know very nicely say, "Hey guys, I'm sorry, but I, you got to leave. I, I just don't know anybody here anymore, and I, you know, I need to go to bed." Yeah, yeah. Well, um, let's. Uh, so I know you guys wanted to talk about some other things. Uh, I feel like we should open up the conversation well, a little. Want to talk about your name? Sure. Do you want me? Do you want yeah. Me? Well, I was gonna bring it in later, but okay. we can do it now. Okay. I just so, want to forget it. Yeah. Go ahead. So, start from the beginning. Okay. So, um, a lot of people probably listening to this podcast know you as Finch. Mm-hmm. Um. So when you join a fraternity, you have a big brother who is in kind of charge of picking your nickname. So, um, David, as I still refer to you, even though I named you Finch, um, was his given name <laughs> by his parents, um, and. I had to decide on a nickname and I had a lot of trouble with it and I couldn't quite figure it out. My nickname in the fraternity is Bandcamp. Um, I didn't think there was ever a really good reason for it, yeah, but I can't remember what that he was. said. I like to tell a lot of stories. Well, you're telling one right now. So. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, but, uh, so that was my nickname. So it kind of got us on to a, uh, thing uh, like probably no one even knows what Bandcamp is from. Yeah. Okay. Or... I guess I should say that. Um, <laughs> and maybe they don't know Finch either from American pie, the movie, so it was, um, I forget who played that role, but it was this girl who would talk about all her stories at band camp. Allison something. This yeah. one time at band camp. This one time at band camp. Yep. So that was my nickname. So you had like a jersey with our fraternity letters on it and your nickname was on the back. So it said band camp. So I was sitting there in college and I couldn't think of a name. Um, and we were sitting around actually um, probably smoking weed with uh, Mike. Um, one of Chris's drunk Mike, yeah, drunk Mike, yeah, it's one, one of one of Chris's. Uh, best <laughs> I forgot friends. about drunk Mike. Yeah, yeah the one and only. And uh, he's the one that actually helped me come up with it. So we were kind of spitballing the ideas. He's like, "Well, why don't you do something with American Pie?" And I went, "Oh my God, Finch." Um, David, even at that point, was like a little eclectic, you know, like probably um, into things that wouldn't be as mainstream as like a lot of the other fraternity members and stuff like that. He always had like a different view on everything, which was like, it was really cool and refreshing, but it wasn't just the uh, standard look down the middle view. So um, we decided to name him Finch, which is one of my happiest moments that he really enjoyed the nickname and yeah. will still use it uh, occasionally. Like if I hear him introducing himself as Finch, I just light up with a smile and I go, <laughs> well, that's your name on social media, isn't it? Well, that's been, I've been introducing myself and yeah, going by Finch primarily so since... 2008 so for like 10 years now solid 
and I've been tra- traveled around the world and introduced myself as Finch. And th- I mean, there's a lot of people that think my that that's my <laughs> birth name. They don't know that that's a nickname at all. Because what made you decide in 2008 to uh, reclaim the glory? Uh, well, this one time at Burning Man. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, some of the guys like. After you named me that, um, some people would just call me Finch and it was kind of a nickname. Most people would still call me Dave. Um, but when, so I graduated in 2007, 2008 was my first year at Burning Man. And, uh, I didn't know anything about Burning Man at all. And I didn't want to know. I just heard it was really cool and I wanted to go in pretty blind and just experience it. So I discovered there's this whole culture there. Well, of freedom and liberation, exploration, open-mindedness. But a lot of people used Burning Man as an opportunity to embrace their more, their more full self. And they would have like different names that was like their burner name that they would just, that's who they were at Burning Man. They were like this, not a character, but just sort of something a name and a persona that was there that they could like mm-hmm. kind of like, I don't know, open their wings as opposed to their professional and, life and the embrace a different world. kind of freedom with yeah. their, like a, an alternate, like, yeah. Doesn't Tommy go by aunt Edna or something like that? It's aunt something, but not Edna. <laughs> aunt Sue. I don't know. So, um, I just, I was like, wow, that's so cool. And I was just introducing myself as Dave as I normally do. And I was meeting all these, you know, um, people named Panther or whatever, you know, and, and, and I was like, I want to burn her name. And then I realized I have a pretty cool name Finch. And so for the rest of that week, I started introducing myself as Finch and just getting into the spirit of burning man. And I ended up having an amazing, super transformative week. It is actually incredible. The amount that I feel like I grew and changed and opened as a person in a single week. And then uh, me and my best friend, Danny, also a member of the fraternity. Uh, so we had plans. He So I had just quit my job because I was over it. And he was returning from Hawaii. He was had been working on a cruise ship for a, a while. And so we made a plan. We're going to go to Burning Man for the first time. We're going to get back and then hop on a plane to Australia for a year. And um, with no plans, we just our backpacks, get off the plane, figure it out. And so just coming off of this week at Burning Man being Finch and then going to this new country where nobody knew me, I wanted to continue in that spirit of like opening up into this mm, deeper aspect of myself, like maybe more spiritual or mystical or I didn't even know what, but I I just wanted to explore a new way of being. And so I just decided to um, introduce myself as Finch for nine months straight and then when I came back, I made everyone call me Finch and refused to let them call me Dave for at least a little period of time. But did you liked it when I originally gave you that, right? Yeah, I liked it. You and were always like a little spiritual, even, you know, as an 18, 19 year old. Yeah. Yeah. And well, I think that I came off differently to on the outside than the way I, I felt on the inside. Cause I was actually really shy and kind of insecure. And, um, I would weigh my words really heavily, like in social situations. Um, I was always listening and always paying attention, but I would only speak up. And if I felt like I had something like 
that was worth contributing. So I'd weigh my words and I'd be like, no, that's stupid. I'm not going to say that. And so I realized later the external perspective was that I was just this quiet kid that would sit there and every now and then say something super profound and then shut up for another 20 minutes, you know, and I would just like come in with these comments that would, you know, I, I, that I felt like, okay, that's worth saying. Mm -hmm. And so then I would like contribute to the conversation and open it up in a new way. But I wasn't really like, I didn't really like know how to banter or I didn't feel confident doing that at that time. And so like in the movie, you know, all the other kids are just being regular kids, getting drunk and partying and being silly and stupid. And Finch is just more interested in like sophisticated pursuits and drinking wine instead of beer. That you were you're a band camp and you're known for talking a lot, I guess, (laughs) telling stories and that you are known for being the quiet one. Yeah. Yeah. And now I'm, uh, I have a podcast where yeah. I talk. Exactly. <laughs> but I still feel like the quiet one. You, like, you, I agree with what like that perception was. It definitely felt like if you were saying something, it was very thoughtful. Uh-huh. And so that's like, like when, when Mike suggested it, it was like clicked right away. It's, um, I've had other little brothers and, um, I like their nicknames, but it never felt like, oh, that's perfect. But you mm-hmm. know, just the being the, uh, same theme as mine and then just the personality just i'm like oh that's it yeah so mike has some good ones drunk oh yeah mike. drunk mike had some good ones uh, i've completely forgot about drunk mike um so i'm curious to hear so both of you guys have listened to podcasts i've heard a little bit about what you guys think of it. i'm curious to hear what you guys think of the subject matter because it's very it is very alternative and i mean i in the last 11 years since college i've been on so many different journeys of so many different types that have just brought me like yeah down alternative paths and away from i mean yeah totally different than the chico kind of lower into you know like making south park references and whatever um but yeah like all of this that the the kind of things i like to talk about psychedelics um ayahuasca meditation tantra um whatever just uh, personal growth and expanded consciousness it's a field which i've always been interested in but i feel like it's slowly becoming more and more mainstream i've just been watching it slowly start to penetrate into the mainstream and um, you know, like now, I don't know, I'd be curious, like what percentage of people have heard of ayahuasca or know about it, but I mean, most people do definitely, I mean, it's, I, don't think I think most more on do. a, like a, in the West, West coast of the United States more than anywhere else in the country. But I, I think a lot, a lot of people, I mean, had you guys heard of it before? Yeah. Everyone's um, heard of it. I, I think, think it's like. really started to catch on. Um, at least, like you said, on the West Coast in the last uh, five or so years. I, I never heard of it before that, uh, I don't think. And, I mean, now there's like a whole psychedelic renaissance as far as seeing what the medicinal mm. uses are, as you, I'm sure, are aware. Mm-hmm. The government is allowing testing to happen for using mushrooms and MDMA and probably other things. Mm-hmm. Um, because those things weren't 
even illegal uh, before the 60s. It was really right. when the counterculture made LSD their their sort of reason for being uh, for a while, I think, when the government thought this is out of control. We, we can't let these people do this, right? Even but, though they were one of the original testers of it. Of course. You ever hear about that? The, um, oh, God, what was it called? I should know this. About the CIA? Stuff yeah, maybe. the CIA... I can't it was a think project. Of a name. It was the something project, I think. Yeah, um, some project that they had where um, they they were testing. Um, Jamie, pull that up. Yeah, Jamie, <laughs> young Jamie. Um, <laughs> they uh, they they were they were testing LSD to see if it was an effective mind control agent or like a truth serum. If they could dose people with LSD and then like pull information out of them or um, uh, make them more susceptible to influence and things like that and ultimately they found that it was not effective for that but they ended up dosing a bunch of people uh like on really high amounts of lsd just to see what happened and i just learned this other day that one of those people um i could be wrong about this but one one of those people what ended up being the unabomber yes i heard that yeah yeah, we both heard that. Yeah, we both heard that <laughs> <laughs> in the same place. Um, but I don't know. Yeah. Uh, like, So I would disagree with you guys about most people knowing about that stuff. I knew about it prior to this, but I live in Orange County, which is a much more conservative area than you guys um, live in. And I work at a construction place, which is a much more conservative industry that you guys kind of work in. And I would guess that the majority of people that I work with and the majority of my neighbors would have no idea what ayahuasca is. That's probably true. So, but how did you hear about it? Just because uh, you're connected to other yeah, folks? Yeah, and like, you know, Joe Rogan podcast, he's talked about it. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I'm more connected. To, yeah, like, and not that no one knows it or anything mm-hmm. like that, but I'm more connected to like a lot of my friends are in LA. I talk to them a lot, things like that. But I would guess the majority of people down there would have no idea what that was. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. fine. Actually, I'm fine with that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> me too, but yeah. There's a, there's a clip online somewhere of, a, I, I don't know which military branch it was, but there's actually footage of p- people in the military in uniform on LSD trying to receive orders from whoever. Like the general is trying to get people to salute yeah. and stand up straight, and they're just laughing and like and leaning forward and they just can't even stand in a straight line there's crazy videos on youtube from that time of like uh nine-year-old children on lsd because timothy leary's thing was dose everyone he you know he was just (laughs) super radical and maybe a big part of the reason it was made illegal yeah part of that sort of just really radical um psychedelic movement um which, uh, you know, I'm a big proponent for intentional use. And I think psychedelics are really powerful and potentially dangerous, like for your psyche and mental health, if you don't know what you're doing. Like it's just like anything. I mean, you know, if you've never been to the gym before and you want to go in and lift lift heavy weights, you can hurt yourself. And mm-hmm. psychedelics are like heavy weightlifting at higher doses, and you definitely have to work up to that um, if you're going to do it at all. Yeah, be so. in the right situation and know what you're getting yourself yes. into. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think for us in college, we all probably did 
our share of mushrooms here and there. Mm -hmm. And, uh, that's sort of, once you realize that your mind can function completely differently and you can see the world through a completely different lens, it it just really sparked my curiosity even more. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was curious to try it. I was curious to try everything. Um, Mm -hmm. and then, you know, yeah, Joe Rogan, uh, the DMT spirit molecule. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I know that was a book and, but he, you know, he talks about that stuff a lot. So yeah, that's where I first heard about DMT was from Joe Rogan, like a Me clip or, or something like that. Yeah. He has like that YouTube DMT. video with all the graphics on it and stuff like that. Yeah. 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 I was like, what is that? <laughs> um, so, uh, where have you, either of you, where have your paths of exploration have you explored more deeply with psychedelics? Um, I, I've never done DMT actually. Um, I've done mushrooms, um, and acid in college. I don't know if I did acid in college, probably just mushrooms. And it was more just literally like a party kind of thing. Like, let me get really messed up and see some cool things. Mm -hmm. Um, it wasn't till later when I would do mushrooms when, um, I kind of realized the way it's can affect you and see another kind of version besides just me seeing some cool stuff and being extra fucked up kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of, I, I remember in college, the worst part of doing mushrooms was after like, you know, you were done tripping really hard and like the next couple hours and it's like, Oh, it won't go away. But, um, as I got older, that became kind of almost my favorite part where I became reflective on what mm-hmm. happened. Um, I remember the first time that happened actually it was my friend's bachelor party in Santa Barbara and we took some mushrooms and we were kind of exploring on the beach and things like that. And we were staying in a house with a really big backyard kind of laying in the backyard. And I remember just sitting there and being really reflective and, you know, not just thinking about, Whoa, I got, I was really messed up, but thinking about my life and, different decisions I could make and different paths I can go down and how to change that. And that kind of changed my perspective on it from it going to a let's party, have fun kind of thing to a more um, growth kind of thing, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think a lot of people start out with recreational use. I certainly did. I didn't even know about, I'd never even heard about ceremonial use of psychedelics until after college was I introduced to that. And I learned about, um, that you know native americans and all kinds of different indigenous traditions around the world have ceremonies around psychedelic plants and um, they consider them to be sacraments and um, just basically gifts from the gods that um, that you can eat this plant and access higher consciousness it is pretty amazing and mysterious that these things even exist absolutely Mm -hmm. i mean i've had really I've had a continue, uh, a multitude of experiences, particularly with ayahuasca, but also mushrooms of just feeling a profound sense of gratitude that this thing even exists, mm-hmm. like going through the experience, but then just having a reflective moment of like, I can't believe this is a real thing that th- you mix these plants together and you can have this kind of experience that this, these are natural compounds that exist in nature that somehow interact with my brain in this way to like, open up this expanded potential that exists within me. Mm -hmm. Like that's kind of miraculous and, um, strange. Yeah. Um, so a question for you, um, 
when you've done ayahuasca, has it only been on like retreats in South America or have you done it other places? I've never been to South America. Um, I was introduced to it, uh, 2010 and, uh, I met a friend, um, an older gentleman, um, and he had been going to Peru since the mid nineties and, um, just, uh, either by himself or with one other friend that, that they would go down and they ended up doing hundreds of ceremonies down in the Amazon. And he ended up doing shamanic training to learn how to heal with the, the you know, to basically become a shaman and learn the medicine songs and learn how to actually work with the energy of the plants and hold the ceremony to facilitate healing for other people. Mm-hmm. His friend didn't, um, and it's a super difficult path. Like myself having, and I studied under him um, for a period of months and um, just having like put my toes in the water, I can't imagine a more difficult path that exists than becoming like a legitimate shaman. It, because in order, I feel like in order to understand the darkness that exists within all of us or within other people to understand how to heal other people, you have to un- you have to learn how to heal yourself, uh, which is a great benef- added benefit of like you do your own healing work and you understand how to heal other people. But it just takes um, a profound commitment beyond words of the the courage it takes to go deep within yourself and find like you know pain and old wounds that you didn't process or things that you run away. Like, I think we all have these things that are aspects of ourself that, um, need more attention, need more love that we need to work on that. Um, most of us just o- avoid either consciously or unconsciously by, you know, being too busy or getting into this or getting into that, but to really dedicate yourself in that way and, you know, go down, to the Amazon or you don't have to go to the Amazon, but just to, just to sit with all of that and go deep into it and unravel it and come to the other side of it. Um, I think it is profoundly difficult. So when you say, uh, the work that you have to do to get to that point, is it a, is it about how often you, uh, need to take those journeys and how much you take to go that deep? I mean, uh, is that, what it takes to uh to become a shaman is that part of what you're saying or not necessarily i think it's not all related to the plant well i would say it's it's more about um taking it's not about like how many ceremonies you've done or like how much ayahuasca you drink or can drink it's more about like how how much can you take advantage of what's given to you in the moment. So like you can have one ceremony and receive really, a really profound healing experience and deep learning from it. If you open to it, that's really what it's all about. It's like, because like I find this, there's a certain pressure, I guess could describe it as there's a certain like current that the ayahuasca brings in, or it could be mushrooms or anything, but definitely with, I felt it with ayahuasca that it's like, it's trying to, sh- it's showing me something. It's revealing something to me. And maybe that is something that I don't want to see in myself. 
But the more I can open to that and the more I can relax the part of my mind that wants to resist or doesn't want to see and just even just be open to seeing things a different way and like kind of just let that in and um, basically like not tense up and just like relax and open and breathe deeply. Like that's how you get more out of the experience. And it's possible to do ceremony after ceremony after ceremony where you stay closed and you stay tight. You could do a hundred ceremonies and learn nothing and, um, and just like stay in your safety zone and never expand beyond that. Or you can do one ceremony and like totally open and give yourself over to it and allow it to show you deeply and fully what it has to offer and be, you know, forever transformed for the positive. So it's more so up to you, up to the user of how you like how you're able to show up for that moment and basically, um, yeah, like how much, how much, how much can you open to that opportunity? It's sort of hard to describe, but I think that that, yeah, uh, comes across. It's, uh, the ego sort of dissolves when you're having some of these experiences. I think the filter that we have uh, created for ourselves, the identity that we have, you know, uh, uh, it, it, it gets ripped away a little bit and mm-hmm. you get to see some, some more pure truth, which can be good. And I mean, it's all good, but it can be difficult or yeah, it can difficult. be, but there's also just, I've had experiences where it's just, I have nothing but gratitude for everything, you know? Yeah. I've had both. Like you don't, and everything in between, you don't know who's going to answer when you dial the, the number is one yeah. way I've heard it described, you know? Um, yeah. But yeah. And I feel the same way about, it's just unbelievable that it exists. Um, yeah. It's the, it so reminds weird. me of, you know, when we were kids and you see like, Oh, like someone goes off to a native American sweat lodge or something like in a cartoon or something. And you see all the visions. Yeah. And I remember as a kid thinking like that isn't real like that. It's a car. Yeah. This is fantasy, but you know, it's very much like that yeah, <laughs> in a it lot is. of ways. Yeah. It's pretty magical. Yeah. I remember doing, uh, maybe I've talked about this on the podcast before, but I remember doing uh, San Pedro cactus, which has a mescaline alkaloid in it amongst many others. But I remember closing my eyes and seeing visuals, which are very different to mush- mushroom visuals or ayahuasca visuals. And the visuals look just like the patterns on Native American pottery, this sort of like arrow pattern. Mm. Uh, but they were in color and they were like, they were moving. And I remember thinking, oh my God, like I, I never realized mm-hmm. that like, that pattern that's on Native American blankets and pottery, that that is actually a psychedelic vision. And that I've they seen saw. that similar thing multiple times in different psychedelic experiences. I, I've seen it on LSD, something like it anyway, mm-hmm. and uh, mushrooms as well. Yeah, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. How would you compare the visuals on ayahuasca compared to like mushrooms or uh, LSD or something like that? Uh, well, or does it depend know, on is each experience different or is it uniform in any way? Uh, well, they're all different, but there there's some overlap. And, you know, people sometimes ascribe a gender to certain plants. Like people talk about um, grandfather peyote and, 
grandfather or San Pedro, St. Peter as being more masculine plants. I just heard that in the podcast I just listened to. Yeah. Um, and also just in terms of geometry, like straight lines are more associated with masculine energies and curvy lines are more associated with feminine energies. And I've noticed that the plants that are more referred to as feminine plants have more curvy visuals. Like, um, ayahuasca is very snake-like, very serpentine. And, um, have you ever seen the Shipibo pattern? It's a sort of like, I'll show it to you later. Or I'll put a little, um, image up in the YouTube clip for people to see, but there's, there's kind of like these, um, shapes or geometric artifacts within. And then there's all, there's all these squiggles mm -hmm. and, um, it's just a static, like it's a tapestry that the Shipibo women, um, stitch together. But in the visual experience of it, um, all those squiggles are like they're vibrating and the whole thing is alive and the whole thing is moving. Um, and what they say, or I've heard that they say is that that pattern is actually a visual representation of sound and of a song and that the shamanic peoples have learned how to read that and that, that, um, that's that they can read this, that this, this energy comes to them and, um, they can learn how they can learn a song from the plant basically. And that's what a lot of these medicine songs are is like, they've been, you know, nobody sort of made them up with their human mind. They were like transmissions that came from, they learned how to like, that they call that the, the visuals, they call that the language of the plants. That's how the plants speak to them. And so they've learned that language and they understand how to work, how to work with those energies and move those energies through them to heal people or to sing a certain song. And, um, my friend who went down to the Amazon and, and studied with like grandfather shamans for over a course of years, he learned some of their songs and he also has songs that no one ever taught him and that he doesn't even know. Like I've asked him before, I was like, wow, that one song kind of went like this. Da, da, da. Like, what was that song? Like, and he's like, I don't know. Like if I had to sing it to you right now, I couldn't. Um, it's just a song that comes through sometimes. And it was this full, complete, gorgeous, really beautiful, powerful song that just, he said, just comes through sometimes. You know, like there's this whole world that some, that these plants are just a doorway to, you know, and it's like stepping through the, uh, the closet into Narnia and you're just <laughs> like a baby surrounded by, you know, it's just like t totally out of our element, but it's incredible that there are people, humans, sh you know, shamanic peoples who have a ton of experience on that other side and they know what all these things are. There's like energies and, you know, beings and creatures and all kinds of stuff, spirits and things like that, that is a different world than ours, but, uh, they know how they, they step through that doorway intentionally and they know how to navigate it and draw power from it. So this might be, I mean, this is impossible to answer, but what is your take on, I guess, are we going into another dimension of being when we uh, step through that door or is this something that exists on this plane but we don't have the right lens to see things? Mm -hmm. um, 
I can give you my take on it. I, I, don't know I would love your take on it. I don't it. know if it's right. Yeah. And I d definitely don't claim for it to be right. But my, my t see, because I, I first tapped into those worlds through psychedelics, but I later learned that there's ways to access them without psychedelics. And I became very interested in that. And um, I had a period of time of doing um, like intense regular yoga and hours of meditation per day. And, um, what I feel like happens, it's kind of, it's like, we have a certain frequency you get, I guess you could say like a certain, um, that's the best way to like, there's a certain level that we vibrate at. And, and, um, most of us are at a certain vibrational level in this 3d human existence world, but there's certain things that you can do to raise that frequency. And then just like you might turn a dial on an old school radio and then, um, you know, uh, the channel you're on starts to get a little bit fuzzier and then you transition into another channel and then you're fully on this other channel. Uh, my take basically using these really rough shot analogies is that other dimensions are other frequencies uh, typically higher frequencies, but there's also lower frequency dimensions too. And that the psychedelics just make it easier to access these, these dimensions because they, they bring you there. Oh, actually, and I've actually, f I can feel like my vibration, my frequency rising. And I can also, when I'm in that state, I can rise it even further to access different, different states of consciousness. And I think it's definitely possible to do that without psychedelics, but you have to pursue it more. I mean, you could just take mushrooms and it can happen to you and you don't even know what's happening. You don't even know that that's what's happening. But if you want to access that more intentionally, then you, you know, there's like ancient protocols for how you can do that from different traditions all over the world um, of like tapping into these realms and I think that a lot of like ancient mythologies or like, you know, maybe like Chinese dragons or uh, a lot of these mythical creatures might exist on these different channels of reality. Um, and we're like, Oh, they don't exist. Cause we don't see them. Cause we're not able to, you know, but, um, yeah, that's my take is that, um, I mean, you could call them different dimensions. I mean, that's just a word. What is right. a dimension? I don't know. Um, but I, I feel like we human beings, we are, we have the capability of being multidimensional that we don't need that. It's helpful for accessing that. We don't need the psychedelics, but um, I feel like we're capable of attuning our own radio to receive different frequencies of reality. Yeah. It's like different kinds of realities almost. Right? Yeah. And our own brain makes DMT. Like that's pretty crazy too. Like why? Well, nobody knows. But they, yeah. but there's theories that when we're born, we get a blast of that released. And when uh, you know, near death experiences, people might be getting a rush of DMT release mm -hmm. because people see spiritual realms and they see mm. the light i've seen the light from those trips you know yeah and uh 
Yeah. So, and that was the other one. Oh, dreaming. They say, I don't know who they is. I've heard that, uh, that <laughs> dream guys might, might, uh, come from DMT as well. Yeah. Um, it's speculated that it's hypothesized. Yeah. So, but it's definitely a field of research that, um, it's very new and there's been some suggestions in that direction, but there needs to be more research to, you know, kind of nail those conclusions down. But yeah, like my wife worked in the birth field and, um, she talks a lot about the difference between when a child is born naturally or compared to like having a C-section and stuff like that, um, with like the serotonin and things like that, that have been, you know, medically proven. But, um, you know, that might be connected to it where there's, not necessarily health problems because you've been born with a C-section, but you have a higher likelihood of certain problems with that. And I mm -hmm. wonder if that's all kind of interconnected with what you're saying. Could be. Yeah. Th I mean, there's also, there's also certain, um, like bac bacteria and helpful things mm -hmm. that you get from exiting out the vaginal canal that, yeah. and stuff like that too. So I guess now they're like, if a baby's born by C-section, they'll take some of the those secretions and just like swab the baby to try to give us, give them some of that. Yeah. And they're, um, you know, they're all covered in their own fluid when you, you know, they come out and now they don't wash them right away. You can just mm. have them cause they're fine. You know, yeah. they don't need to be washed off right away. They're a brand new baby. Yeah. And I, who knows what the medical, I wonder if they ever, like, would even use like antibacterial soap on like new babies or something like that I back mean, in the day. I think, I think even today they do because there's um, still that push and that pull between these new kind of thoughts um, and the way they've always done it kind mm -hmm. of thing. Yeah. And I know um, when you go in, if you have a hospital birth, you have to make, if you want not, you know, the baby giving medicine immediately and stuff like that, you have to make those specific requests and kind of be very like upfront about it or they will do that pretty much automatically. Yeah. They just have their like, protocol based on momentum of the past momentum but you know their insurance practices and stuff like that yeah um something uh, uh, interesting that you guys could probably find in this area is called holotropic breathwork have you ever heard of that no so i did holotropic breathwork once and um it's basically um guy it's sort of like a guided meditation but it involves um very intense deep intentional breathing and um it's it becomes uncomfortable like you're, you're just breathing in and out like not super rapidly not like um what do you call it um uh, i can't think of the word but anyway uh there you're so you're lying down and you're you're they're guiding you through these breathing techniques and there's this thing that starts happening where your um hands and your toes your fingers and your toes start sort of like flexing back and forth with your breath there's a name for it. It's called tetany and, um, and it, and it gets uncomfortable, but you have to like breathe through this, this point. And then the tetany can even increase to where like your arms and your legs are going, you're kind of like spazzing out a little bit. And this is just happening or you're doing it intentionally. No, like it's involuntary. Wow. It's involuntary. Just your, your, yeah. And it starts at your, the end of your extremities and kind of like works into your body. Right. And so the, what, like what this is supposed to do or, um, the, the point of doing it is it, it 
it kind of opens you up emotionally and people can have a, a cathartic experiences where they'll just start crying. They'll just have this emotional release. It, it just, the, the breathing and whatever's going on energetically, like opens up the body in this way that gets the energy to flow in a way that it normally doesn't. Right. So I've done this a couple of times. Uh, but one time I was really going for it. I, and it's, it's, I'm not going to lie. It's uncomfortable in a way that's hard to describe. Like you don't want to keep doing cause your whole body is like mm-hmm. spazzing out, but you just kind of one pointed focus push through. And so I'm in the middle of this and I can feel inside of my head, this squirt. And it was like, um, if you remember the gushers, it was mm-hmm. like candies. It was like, if you'd squeeze it just yeah. a little harder and harder and harder, and then it'd break and it'd like squirt. It was just that kind of feeling. And I was like, what the fuck was that? And all of a sudden I start seeing like colors and geometries and I'm like flying through this kaleidoscopic tunnel of shapes. And the next thing I know the meditation's over and they're like, okay, like it's time to start waking up. And I'm super, super drowsy. I'm like so out of it. I feel like I just came back from another world. <laughs> and um, I felt like I had slept for four days straight. I was like super restored, like a wow. really deep level of restoration. And I actually didn't even know that much about DMT at that time. I'd never smoked it. I didn't know much about it. But later after learning about it, and learning that it's in the pineal gland, which is in the very center of your brain. I was like, holy shit, I think I got my pineal gland to endogenously release DMT. And then after smoking DMT, I've had a similar experience of the colors and shapes and flying down that tunnel. So. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and I. So you think there's ways to access it, we just haven't really fully figured it out yet? Well, I think some people have figured it out (laughs) and I didn't know that that can happen through holotropic breath work, but, but I had that experience and, um, Kundalini yoga is another one. That's what I've heard too. Yeah. Yeah. And Kundalini yoga, um, is also really difficult in a certain way. That's hard to describe where it basically, it helps you break through a certain point of mental weakness of like where cause you're often doing these re- repetitive motions, um, or just like sustained body posture for long periods of time. And it's a sort of like slow burn that you get from just doing like horse stance or something like we used to do a horse stance in Taekwondo as a kid. And you just, you just like, um, kind of bent, bend your knees and you crouch down and, um, you get to a point where it hurts and it burns and you want to quit, but you can keep going and it, uh, you just find you can tap actually into like a deeper and deeper strength uh, and will uh, just where you feel the pain and you kind of breathe through it and then it can actually give way to where all of a sudden it doesn't hurt anymore where you feel like I can't do this for I cannot do this for five more seconds it hurts too much and then you get through that five you get through another five and then all of a sudden it doesn't hurt anymore and um, you get this rush of energy. I've had that in Kundalini Yoga too. You just get this like massive rush of energy, and you feel super high, and like like the adrenaline's pumping and everything. I don't know if it's adrenaline or what it is, but um, I have felt minor psychedelic states after Kundalini Yoga. I'm like walking outside, and all the colors are brighter. 
I just feel like, and I can like, like I can taste the air and you know, I'm just in this heightened state just off of whatever. Um, and Kundalini yoga is like a whole science and methodology that, you know, I've done a couple classes. I don't really know that much about it, but, um, it's also called Kriya yoga and, uh, actually brought to the West by Paramhansa Yogananda, who okay. we were talking about earlier. I'm going to read his book. Yeah. You should read his book. Autobiography of a Yogi. Kriya yoga and Kundalini yoga, I think are slightly different, but they're from sort of similar branches if I'm not wrong, but yeah, there's these ancient technologies basically of like how to unlock um, these higher states of consciousness, which here in the West, we debate their very existence. Right. But, and that's what, when I, when I have experienced those things, the first questions that came to my mind were like, what was that? And you know, mm -hmm. how much of it is, is just in the mind. And you know, that's why I asked you the question earlier, what's your take on it? But I also, you know, even from just going for a long run or yeah. just focusing on my own breathing and doing my own, I'm a novice meditator, but I've gotten little taste of what you're describing. So it makes sense that something with more, uh, something that's more strenuous, um, and requires all of your focus just to get through it would, uh, take you even further. Yeah. Yeah. Um, since Chris, mentioned meditating i've expressed to him that it's something i want to start doing more that it, but i feel um don't do a good job at so i know you're pretty good at it um, what kind of uh, recommendations would you have for like a novice meditator getting into it That's i have, tr I have trouble question. shutting off my mind i just i sit there and even with a script or something like that i just yeah totally well so when i first started meditating i I came in with a lot of ideas of what, like what is right and what's wrong that I ended up abandoning. I, you know, realized that there was a lot of things I thought about it that were actually unhelpful. So, and one thing I read that was helpful was that it's the nature of the untrained mind to wander. And so when we come in to meditation and we think that we can just shut off our mind, we actually have like incredibly unrealistic expectations of being able to do that. And to even have that goal is like, it's unre it's unreasonable. It's the nature of the untrained mind to wander. So, and it, and it takes quite a bit of training to learn to quiet it down. And an analogy I came up with is like, say you have a big dog and it's in a small yard and big dogs in a small yard are going to get crazy because they need they need space to run around. And that's basically us in our everyday lives because we're, we just live in these busy cities and we have busy lives and so many things going on. And we, most of us don't have the time or make the time or space for, you know, our mind to get that good run. And sometimes exercise can do it for people, but meditation is great too. So what I do when I meditate, it's like, say that small yard is on the edge of a wide open field. Um, and meditation is you just, you open the gate and the first thing the dog does is bolts out the gate and just runs around. It's like, finally I have space to run around. So when I first start meditating, I'm just considering that's what's happening right now. My mind is like running off its energy. Mm -hmm. Right. But if you leave that gate open, the dog's going to, the dog's going to go run around, have his good time, 
chase some squirrels, and then eventually he's going to come back into the yard under his own volition and sit down on the deck and be chill. And you have to, in my experience, I have to give myself enough time meditating or enough consistency over some days for that to happen. Like maybe just in one session, especially if you just sit down for 15 minutes, your dog is not going to run out all of its energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so doing some every day, I found consistency is the most helpful. Um, you get that practice, right? Um, and then another thing I like to say is there's no wrong way to meditate, only better ways, because I kept experiencing this frustration in meditation of like, I'm doing it wrong because I had all these expectations of what it was like to do right. Yeah. But I had to I eventually kind of adjusted that, that if I've made it through all of the excuses to not meditate and I'm actually meditating, I'm doing it right. And then, you know, there's better ways too of like keeping focus and training the mind and, and stuff like that. But like, if you're actually meditating, then you're doing a good job for yourself. You know, even if you feel like there's, you're just experiencing utter chaos, you're actually just doing something going. of benefit. Just, just keep going, right? Just mm-hmm. keep doing it. Um, I heard somebody say that meditation is like a video game where if you try to go forward, you can't. Like you, ha- you have to just, like if you do have these thoughts come into your mind, you can't just blast through them. You have to acknowledge it and give it its weight and, and let it pass. Uh, you can't fight the fact that your mind is going to be restless sometimes. Totally. Right. Yeah. You just have to, you have to cultivate sort of, um, an objective observer. They're just, you're just watching what's going on and not necessarily trying to, yeah, fight it or change it. But do you recommend like listening to scripts when you do this or, I mean, there's different things that work well for different people. Um, for me, I personally don't go for like some people love guided meditation. Mm -hmm. It's really helpful for them. But for me, I prefer just silence. Um, or I even at one point I wondered like if I, I, I started to become dependent on the silence for my peace of mind and like, you know, cars driving by would distract me or something like that. So I would actually from time to time do meditations of just like go sit in a public park and just sit on the grass where there's people around, there's all kinds of noises. And you know, that's just like putting a couple more weights on the, on the bar, you know, mm-hmm. of just like, just, just the degree of difficulty. Yeah. And really the goal in that case was I was cultivating a sense of acceptance of just like all these things are happening. It's all fine. Uh, it doesn't have to disturb me because you know, I'm here doing my thing. And, um, yeah, I started doing that cause I felt a dependence on the silence. I went to a meditation retreat and, um, normally I just meditate by myself and there was people there of all different skill levels, including many, many beginners that were just coughing and shuffling around making all this noise. And it was disturbing me. And I was like, in my mind, I'm trying to meditate and I'm like, fucking sit still, you know? <laughs> but then I'm realizing, I'm like, why does it matter what they're doing? You know, like that's that's like my lesson in this moment is like whatever that guy is doing and there was this guy that was like really really big and he kept 
getting up and down and up and down. He was so big he couldn't he couldn't sit down. He would like soft crash land on this pillow <laughs> and he would fucking shake the floor of the whole place. So just like like a minor shock wave through this like wood floor of like for like forty people. Uh like at least once every single session he would get up and crash land. And um yeah, just I'm like, wow, listen to the thoughts going through my head of this guy, you know, but and, whatever. Yeah, recognizing that you're getting yourself worked up about something that you don't even have control over and yeah, it's all part of just where you are. And th- that moment is just a microcosm of so many other moments that we all can have um, of just things that are out of our control that bother us and we might want to point the finger at this guy who's doing this thing but it actually doesn't matter like so what you know like that doesn't like i can actually be in a state of acceptance of that and have it not bother me like he's not actually doing anything to me i mean he's kind of shaking the floor (laughs) whatever he doesn't mean you harm and he's not trying yeah of course yeah he doesn't mean me harm and um and, you know, I can just be like a buoy on the ocean waves, you know, just like let let all of that stuff pass under me and just kind of like bob with whatever's going on. So it's meditation has helped me build that sense of acceptance and adaptability in a certain sense. Did you like going to a meditation retreat as someone who's done it a bunch previously? I did not. I did. I it was a Vipassana retreat, which is like a 10 day meditation retreat. And for me, it was just like a confluence of circumstances that ended up not being right for me. Um, I I had just gotten back from traveling. Long story short, I was experiencing a really high state of stress going into the retreat. And I thought, oh, this is perfect. I'm going, I'm super stressed out and I meditate to lower my levels of stress. And so this is exactly what I need to go into this 10 day silent retreat. And in that particular style of meditation, um, wait, wait, silent retreat. Yeah. What does that mean? Uh, well you're there. So you're there for 10 days. There's other people there, but you have your own tent. Uh, you don't talk to anybody at all at all. Well, if you need to, you can talk to the facilitators if you have an issue. But there's no but there's small no, talk. There's Hi, no com- how are you doing? No, nothing at all. There's no eye contact. You don't even make eye contact with people. Um, and uh, there's there's meals, and the um, they serve you like buffet style, um, you, uh, like vegetarian meals and stuff like that. And um, so everyone's in in there, but no one's talking. You just sit there with your food and you eat your food. And you're supposed to be sort of like cultivating a, you know, you're between the meditation sessions, you're continuing the state of mindfulness. Is reflection sort of idea. Kind of. Yeah. Like you're, you're, and that's the idea of not talking to other people. You want to kind of stay in that, um, feeling, you know, you, you're either meditating actively or sort of meditating through life. Like that's the kind of idea, but Vipassana as a style of meditation turns out to be incredibly active. Whereas my just home brand of meditation that I do, which I just feels good to me is just way more spacious. And so 
it ended up being something, it, it was this very active technique that required an incredible amount of focus. And, um, I was exactly at the opposite point of that's the op- exact opposite of what I, I needed. So for me, I ended up not enjoying it at all. And I actually left early. Uh, it's a 10 day retreat. I left after day four and, um, I kind of, I didn't, I had this sense of like, I don't want to quit. I don't want to like bitch out and leave, you know, I want to like stay till the end, but I just, I needed to for myself. I, I had a, I had a strange experience where I started having like incredibly dark thoughts that thoughts I've never had in my life. Um, like, like first started off as violent thoughts towards especially that big guy that would like <laughs> crash i'm like that really fuck you. this guy you know <laughs> like, i'm like i'm such a nice guy i can't believe i just thought yeah. fuck that guy right? right um but yeah they started like my thoughts started to turn darker and darker to like thoughts of like hurting people and then thoughts of killing people and then thoughts of killing myself which i've never had thoughts like that and it was really disturbing and alarming to me and i went and talked to the facilitators i was like I told him a little bit and, you know, and, and then told him the thoughts I was having. I was like, is this normal? And they're like, oh yeah, this is normal. Sometimes this happens to people just keep going. So you were kind of losing it. I was sort of losing it. Yeah. And, um, and it's, I mean, it, it's a lot of, it's a, it's like 10 hours of meditation a day and 24 hours a day, you know, in your own thing. Um, and you know, um, you're not supposed to write or do yoga or do anything like you're not, you don't do anything to distract yourself. That's kind of the point. But I felt like I had, I had this high need for like personal care that wasn't being met already coming into that situation in this state of extreme, extreme stress from just like where my life had been at that point. And, um, yeah, that was alarming to me. And I just felt like maybe I could stay here and this will pass, but I've never had, like, I was just having like murderous fantasies passing through my head. I was like, this is, I'm not, I'm not down with this. Like <laughs> that's not the kind of it. guy you, like, <laughs> you're not someone that's usually a violent person. So that's kind all. of out of uh, my field. What's the first thing you did when you left the retreat? Um, I think I, I, I went to the grocery store and got enough food for three days and I went camping by myself. And I just like, you know, kind of did the meditation retreat that I wanted to do. That's what you needed. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, I mean, it was somewhat, well, it wasn't similar at all to the Vipassana, but, um, yeah, I, I still was by myself the entire time. Um, and I still was meditating, not 10 hours a day, but like, you know, a cu- maybe a couple hours a day. And, um, I started to feel way better. And uh, yeah, I just like was able to just go like, let everything go that too, I was too much of anything is, uh, maybe not the best, even meditation. I mean, that sounds like so much yeah. meditation. And it was like, it was heavy lifting, you know, like I also wasn't prepared for that. And I've heard of people going into those without any meditation, prior meditation experience. And I actually had very little at that time. Um, I definitely don't recommend that, but I don't blame Vipassana. I don't feel like that, that I honestly, I thought it was a little bit weird and cultish a little bit, Yeah. but, um, you know, I don't, 
I don't take my personal experience that one time as, you know, I don't, I don't think it's like a bad thing to do. Um, it just wasn't right for me at that time. Mm -hmm. And it's not something I would do again. Um, that particular style. Would you go on a minute, like a different kind of meditation retreat? I mean, I've done, I've done my own meditation retreats, um, just by myself, you know, that I, that I do. Um, I've done, I've done six hours a day for 10 days straight before just on my own. Um, and that's just what works for me. You know, like some, for some people, the meditation retreats are really helpful because, you know, you show up and it's scheduled out. These are the meditation times. Uh, these are the eating times and you don't have to worry about any of that stuff. Especially if you're living like a corporate job where that becomes more difficult, being able to get away for seven to 10 days and it's structured for you probably gets you into that rhythm. Yeah. For some people that's super helpful, but for me, I liked, I've always liked to make my own schedule. I don't like to work for other people. I just like to create my own thing, you know, and I'm good. I'm good with that. So that's what I do. But, yeah, a lot of people have gotten a lot of benefit out of doing medita- meditation retreats, yoga retreats. So they become very, very popular. Yeah, definitely. For going back to yoga, um, I'm asking all these beginner questions. Um, That's fine. I know you do a lot of yoga. Do you prefer ku- uh, Kundalini? I'm going to say it wrong. Kundalini. Kundalini yoga or different kind of methods, or is that kind of the same kind of thing where you do your own brand of it? Uh. I, well, with yoga, I find it helpful to go to classes. Um, and I like to be led through yoga. I also can do my own practice. I've, you know, done it long enough that I, you know, know the, the poses in the sort of proper position. But I think definitely for beginners, it's important to go to classes and with a really experienced teacher. There's a lot of teachers out there. And I mean, you can... there it's not actually that hard to become a yoga teacher, but, um, there's some really, really good yoga teachers out there that know exactly like they'll come and they'll just like move your foot like 15 degrees to the left. And you can feel not just in your foot, but like in your whole leg, you can feel how it changes the pose. Yep. And it's super helpful, especially as a beginner. I think it's essential to go to teachers like that, to learn the proper postures. And then, you know, once you've really got it down, then, you know, you could do your own practice. But, um, I, I personally like to be led and Kundalini yoga is actually quite a different style of yoga from much of the other ones is, I think of it as more of an internal yoga. It's like yoga for the mind instead of, it's a lot more breathing and stuff like that. Correct. Yeah. And it is, it's difficult physically, like it hurts in certain ways, but it's not like a muscular pain. It's like that burning pain, which gets at your mind, which makes you think I want to quit. So I think of it as like inner yoga, whereas other yoga is, um, yeah, more about, um, building strength in the body or building flexibility in the body. And there's a lot of different styles. I like, I like, um, it's a lot of people call it Hatha yoga, but it's Hatha, hatha yoga is pro- properly pronounced. Okay. Hatha yoga. I like Hatha yoga. I've done a couple of classes in that. And I think I went to like two or three classes and like the first one or two, I'm doing the poses. However, mm-hmm. the teacher doesn't say anything to me. And then the oh. last one I had a very good teacher mm-hmm. and I realized I was doing every pose like slightly wrong, but <laughs> even like you said, like moving your feet just a little bit, mm-hmm. you feel the difference immediately. Mm-hmm. 
And I really recommend checking out Iyengar yoga. It's less, I mean, Hatha and Vinyasa are definitely the more popular styles, mm -hmm. but, um, Iyengar yoga, Iyengar was, um, he was an older man, I think when he started teaching and, um, he, it's, it's much deeper. It's like deeper, longer held poses, um, both for strength building and flexibility. Like vinyasa is very much about flow and you're just like fast moving, fl flowing from pose to pose to pose. And it's more, I guess, cardiovascular, yeah. but, um, I find, um, uh, Iyengar yoga to be actually much more effective for like lengthening the muscles and actually building like long lasting flexibility in the joints and in the muscles. Uh, and that's the style that I first learned in the Chico rec center. Okay. Yeah. 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 So I really like Iyengar. It's a little bit harder to find. Um, there's usually just like Iyengar studios as opposed to regular studios where they teach mm -hmm. a lot of different styles. There's often just like um, Iyengar studios and it's much harder to learn. Like most of those teachers really know their stuff. I like this kind of like um, ask Finch questions. <laughs> I know, yeah. Popcorn style. I did, uh, I did hot yoga once. So are, are any of those types of yoga you just described where they have the heat cranked way up or is that a different thing? They can, yeah. I mean, um, you know, you can just add heat to any of those to increase the difficulty or yeah i mean so i had it was this was in santa monica and the instructor was this uh really flamboyant gay guy and he was a real bully like he was he had a headset microphone and, uh -oh. and he would call me out by name because i was new <laughs> and tell me i was doing things wrong and uh like a drill sergeant yoga teacher yeah and they tell you you're not supposed to leave the room no matter what which isn't maybe the best advice that's not yeah. especially with high heat if yeah. like how was it really hot oh yeah it was Super really hot. hot it was the only yeah. time i ever done it and and i went on a whim and uh i had eaten dinner not that long <laughs> before and so i started doing replacement pose like if you can't do a pose you're, you're told to just do something else yeah in some classes anyway but mm -hmm. he was so hardcore he's like that's not the pose and when it was over i had to run to the bathroom and i just lost my, oh man just threw up everywhere like my my dinner and i was just in cold sweats that was my hot yoga story yeah <laughs> um i don't I'm, i don't like i'm not yeah i i feel like a good teacher will recognize that everyone in the room is going to be at different skill levels have absolutely. different needs seems pretty and obvious. it's not about like you know how i don't know how tough you are or whatever it's just like what do you need what does this person need you know, and you ended up puking at the end. I don't think that's what you needed. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, it was severe in there. I mean, it, and, it, and it probably made you never want to do it again. So I never you, tried it again. I mean, I'm not opposed to yoga, yeah. obviously, but hot yoga, I'll probably just steer clear of it. Yeah. Instead of giving you like a good first experience, it turned you off from it. It was actually comical, like, especially in hindsight, like the whole scene. I even brought the wrong color yoga mat. Apparently green was a was bad luck at this particular oh, place. That's bizarre. So he gave me a different one. Yeah, it was all bad. I should have known from that moment. Your, your picture's on the wall there. You're not invited back. Yes. <laughs> Banned for life. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I think that uh, yoga culture is kind of, some parts of yoga culture is very strange to me. It's, it's sort of been ch like 
um, appropriated into more of this sort of like calisthenic sort of Western style aerobic type of thing. Mm-hmm. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's not, it's not even r- like really yoga. It's something else, you know, but it's sort of weird that we just, we know, I think as a culture, we know so little about y- what yoga actually is that there's many different things that fly under the same banner of yoga and people are like, Oh yeah, that's fine. You know, we just don't know the difference. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's such a, there's obviously a ton of benefits from it, but be, it's become so trendy um, and popular, I think too, that a lot of the stuff's used as like a marketing kind of thing. And mm-hmm. you have that angle as well. Yeah. But like you anything, know. you have like the good teachers, the bad teachers, the good programs, the bad programs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess it's hard to tell maybe if you know nothing, it's hard to tell who the good teachers are, but I, I feel like a good teacher is somebody who like you can tell, I can tell that they're in, they're tuning in with each person. They're not just like up there yelling instructions, but they're kind of walking around and they're looking at everyone they're, you know, they're offering corrections and um, helping people to like get into the right pose. I like, I like those kind of people, you know, that's kind of like a good teacher, a bad teacher in anything you do, Yeah, where, you know, it's, yeah. they're helping. Um, they're not just going by their plan. They're trying to uplift mm-hmm. and teach the people that. Yeah, I feel do. like he was taking stuff out on me or something like it was, it was silly. <laughs> trying to take you down a peg. Yeah. Yeah. You should get it was really very good. humbling. You should get <laughs> really good at hot yoga and go back there and show him a thing or two. I'm afraid of him though. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not personally really a big fan of hot yoga, but I, yeah, that's another thing too. Like, um, I don't think hot yoga is for everyone. Like my body runs really hot. I have a lot of internal heat and that's just not what I need. Like it just help. It just builds even more internal heat. And I mean, I sweat during regular yoga. I think mm-hmm. regular yoga is plenty workout. I mean, don't need to like ramp up the intensity it's just if you want to ramp up the intensity just like sink a little deeper in the pose you know do it a little longer yeah yeah well what else we got (laughs) was there anything you guys wanted to talk about i feel like we covered a lot of what we were talking about yeah shall we dare to venture into politics at all we can yeah why not yeah why not 440. Yeah, we got maybe 20, 20 minutes. All right, let's do it. Yeah. Let's do it. So I haven't talked about politics yet on the podcast, and uh, it's um, I'm, I want to just to be a little bit brave. It's Politics is one of those things these days that is just super difficult to talk about because somebody's going to get mad, but, you know, whatever. Uh, so if you don't ulti- like it, ul- turn the podcast off now. <laughs> yeah. Um, but... Chris, I know it's that's something that you have paid a lot of attention to. Too much. Too too much. You're making a lot of noise over there. Oh, that's fine. Sorry. <laughs> Just cleaning up. Yeah. Just giving ambiance. Yeah. Ambiance. Um, so, but yeah, and then there, there was some active political discourse on Facebook some years back, like in the lead up to the uh, Trump clinton election mm-hmm. that uh you know some people were making posts i was making posts you were commenting on them other people were we just had like an active discourse but i'm just curious what's your 
like what's your general like you can go wherever you want with it what's your general take of like these times that we're living in these times are very interesting i think uh i think what's happening is like so many norms um of civility in our politics are one by one being sort of destroyed <laughs> and it's kind of like we are frogs in the pot of water that's been turned on to boil and it takes a little while to get there mm-hmm. and uh no one notices the yeah in- impending and, and i hear really smart like seemingly smart people that are on the conservative side that apologize for things that um that trump says um and act like that's just politics or that's just every side does it kind of thing and i don't know i feel like the climate is more dangerous than it usually is in america um the way that the leader of our country uh speaks about people and sort of casually says violence is is acceptable at rallies and it's all these things that you can if you support him you can write him off as he's just joking around you know but i i uh i think that's one of the big things that's happening that uh civility and decency and just taking the high road like when you're the president of the united states i feel like you should be trying to elevate um the way people treat each other i mean you are setting an example Mm -hmm. i think it's i think things are just a lot meaner now than they've ever been um, mm-hmm. there's a lot more i could say but i think that's one thing and i don't think he's hitler i don't i don't think he's a fascist uh genocidal kind of a person but um mm-hmm. you know all these it's not like any of those guys from the past um started off turned up <laughs> to to <laughs> volume 20 like yeah, a lot of stuff happens very gradually so yeah um i don't know i guess uh that's that's what's at the top of my mind right now with it all. Yeah. yeah. I I think that there's a big piece that a lot of us here on the West coast of the United States are missing being more liberal leaning. I think that uh, a lot of people don't really understand the appeal of Trump to his supporters. And they're definitely, I, I think that there's a clear liberal media bias. Like most of the, um, most of the media is biased to the left and um you know hollywood we're right next to hollywood right now and um this sort of entertainment industry has a loud voice which is extremely left-leaning all of that's fine but i think that we're that within that conversation there's a lot that's missing um especially as related to Trump and um, the, the concerns of his uh, constituents. Is that the right word? Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I am kind of like the same as voters, Chris. I'm a little bit more liberal, but I live in a conservative area. But I, it's like, cons- is it conservative or is it conservative California? It's conservative California. Definitely. Uh-huh. There's a, there's a difference, but um, I mean, they voted for Clinton uh, barely, but like my county voted for Clinton by like 50 to 48 or something like that. It was pretty close. Uh Um, But um, I think the issues I see and I have are, while my politics are more liberal than the conservative politics, is the stuff like Chris was saying, like the violence and the condoning. I think it's a really slippery slope. And 
while even if you think the the media is liberal and things like that condoning violence and stuff about them well where does that stop the next person you don't agree with you can condone violence against them and go from there so i think there's ways to promote your ideas and things like that that other people don't agree with and it's a constructive conversation but at a certain point you have to be above that and while you're promoting your own views and things like that the violence and stuff like that and um destroying people and taking down people Mm -hmm. you know you hope you're above that you know and things like that i mean i have kids and trying to explain to my kids Mm -hmm. you know not just that i don't agree with trump's politics but you know that he's a bully and things like that um it's a hard thing and i had a lot of problems with uh george w bush about his politics and his actions office but i mean i don't think he was a bully Uh, you know i can at least he um I don't agree with what a lot of he did, but I believe he did it. He was professional, at least. I, I think, his, you know. He, yeah, I think he did what he thought was in the best interest of the country. Yeah. I think right Even now. if you disagree with him. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, I disagree that it was in the best interest, but I believe he really did believe that. I don't think right now um, Trump, or, you know, and the leadership does what they think is in the best interest. They do what they think is winning the conversation. Is in their best interest. Yeah, yeah. and I think that's where... I see it as a lot different. Yeah. And I do, I am now starting to, I get why people like him. I can see, I can see why people like, or like his appeal. Why? Because he isn't, it's funny because I wouldn't say he's authentic because I think he says a lot of things that aren't true, but he comes off speaking like the blue collar guy down the street. He talks like one of the unwashed masses and, uh, and he's having fun with it too now i've noticed like he feels really comfortable in his own skin and he's just kind of he doesn't say he's sorry he's a strong man you know and uh, he's taking the gloves off that's the phrase that's often used right like and he doesn't speak like a president he doesn't do all these dramatic pauses and i mean because presidents typically speak like they are very measured yeah mm-hmm. measured and like they're the best of us like they're sort of uh the I highest can, citizen. Yeah. And this Trump's more, uh, he's taking the gloves off is a good way to say it. So, mm-hmm. um, but I do have a hard time understanding why people can forgive so many of the things that he has said just about women alone, but you could go down the list about, you know, um, well, there's a lot about women actually. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. Uh, people that I would think would be, um, that would be sort of a game ender. The fact that he said some of the things that he said, but, I think a lot of these people maybe wouldn't agree with those things, but they see it as such a binary choice between somebody with politics they don't agree upon at all and him, and they've just chosen that's more important. Yeah. But see, I think there's, like, I've been very interested in trying to understand the conservative perspective and just trying to figure out, like, what what's their train of thought. And there, I think there's definitely a state of political tribalism where there's two clear camps and there's a bunch of people in between, but at least in the, you know, main running uh, mm-hmm. of things, there's two clear camps. And I think neither side, either the politicians or the people that vote for them understand the concerns of the other side. And I guess I agree with everything that you guys have said about Trump, but my concern is that on the left, there's a major blind spot which is a weakness to the left and a liability to the left of not understanding uh, the appeal of Trump and 
more importantly, not understanding the desires and needs of the Trump voters. I think it's really easy to write off the Trump constituency as racist and um, condoning all of his speech and actions and that they're just this sort of like um, mass without a voice that he now represents. But I actually have a heart. I actually don't think that. I don't think that 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 they're just these uh, basket of deplorables as Hillary Clinton called them because, and I think like one of the major liabilities of the democratic party is that they're extremely, extremely corrupt, just as corrupt as a Republican party. I agree. And, you know, we kind of give them a pass and that that's, I think where, there needs to be an adjustment in liberal politics and liberal media is like, cause we talk about like, Oh, like they're giving Trump a pass for everything he says. Well, there's just been blatant corruption, um, right in front of our faces that has been swept away by the media and, um, gaslit and forgotten. Um, that I think the other side sees, Yeah, they see that about us. They see the blatant corruption and, um, the, the, well, it happens on both sides how corporations lobby and undermine the, uh, they, they get the politicians to vote for a corporate interest which undermines the interests of the people. The point of government is that they're supposed to protect the people and also, you know, they're supposed to be the middle point between uh, the realistic needs of economies and the realistic needs of the people. Mm-hmm. And I feel like on both sides, uh, the Democrats and Republicans, they've failed the people. And that's what Trump capitalized on uh, by being a political outsider to the Republican Party. He capitalized on that and he took over the Republican Party. Bernie Sanders fell short and uh, Trump won because people didn't want, people didn't want to vote for Hillary Clinton. I didn't, you know? And my concern is that if the Democrats don't get real with their problems within uh, they're going to lose to Trump in 2020. And I think no, nobody can imagine that. Like oh, I can. Yeah. Oh, I, at this point, I feel like I don't imagine win. how it's not going to happen. Like in order to beat him, he still is popular. He's basically been campaigning ever since he won. Mm-hmm. He's still doing campaign rallies, you know? So, you know, who is going to rise from the democratic party to challenge and defeat him? It has to be somebody worthy of defeating him. He's not just going to lose. Yeah. I mean, I, I a hundred percent agree with you. I think a lot of people on both sides are ready to, you know, kind of blow up the system and Trump capitalized on that by, I don't feel like he did blow up the system, but he talked about it a lot and showing something different. Um, you know, I would think it's going to take someone like a Bernie or someone like that who is kind of outside the system a little bit and isn't, you know, thought of as corrupted by the system and who is, instead of running on the, you know, the anti-deplorable kind of theme is running on these ideas and thoughts, you know, that are popular. I mean, forward moving. Yeah. I mean, people in America want access to affordable healthcare, you Mm -hmm. know, as a general thing. So, you know, campaign on that, you know, and things like that and grow this groundswell, you know, people don't want these politicians to be controlled by corporate money. So instead of just saying that, actually show that in your campaign and things like that, I think that's going to be the best way. You know, when you hear like stuff like, like I like Joe Biden, but 
I don't think, I hope he doesn't run because, you know, it's, Me he, too. he's in the system, you know, yeah. and no matter even if he is a good person who, you know, says he won't be controlled, the fact is, if you're in the system like that, you're always going to be thought of that way. And that's a problem. Yeah. And speaking of something changed audio wise, did you hear that? I just creaked the chair a little bit. Something I shifted. You I sound the same to me. Um, I think speaking of corruption on the Democratic side, um, Bernie had the DAC stacked against him running against Hillary. We all know that. And yeah. there's varying degrees of how far you want to say that it was corrupt, but he at least had super delegates stacked against him. And those are just people that are given this power to mm -hmm. totally. think they know better than the voters. There are several states where he got more votes, but the super delegates tipped the state into her favor. And then she got all the delegates. Like the system didn't make But it, it was even more egregious than that. I think too. it was. I just don't know for sure. So I, yeah, like there was, um, I mean, uh, John Podesta, who was Hillary Clinton's campaign manager, he ended up having his, well, emails hacked is a story by Russia, supposedly, even though not proven. But that's this whole runaway Russia story is that like Russia hacked the Democratic Party to reveal all their dirty laundry to support Trump. There's actually like there's actually nothing behind that evidence wise. It's this weird story. But it, I think and I mean, I'm just briefly mentioning because it would take a long well, time. Well, didn't to Roger unravel. Stone say uh, you're going to hear about John Podesta in a couple of days, and then the document dump came? I, I don't recall that. That could be. I think he's. That could be one of Trump's cronies. Uh, he's working with Mueller now too, but uh -huh. but I don't know. That's just one thing I heard. But well, I mean, what the Russia thing? People is, are saying it, it's it is it's another story, but basically the the roar of that story kind of overwrote the dirty laundry facts that yeah. came out like nobody disputed the credibility of the emails and what the emails revealed was that the democratic party which is supposed to be neut a neutral governing body and they sort of facilitate all the whatever the that's a really good the, point the yeah. infrastructure for the candidates they're not supposed to uh, show favoritism. In fact, it might be illegal to do so. I'm not sure if it's le illegal, but it's definitely immoral. And they're definitely not supposed to show favoritism towards one candidate or another. The emails revealed that they were fully in line with a Clinton candidate. Uh, they also revealed that the um, Clinton campaign was coordinating with the media, with CNN, to for Hillary Clinton to receive the debate questions beforehand. This this is like talk about like you know, people are like Trump is undermining democracy. That that's that is more egregious than anything Trump has done. Like that is actually like legit provable corruption and undermining of the democratic process. That combined with superdelegates, it's just it's. And I mean, Trump has said a lot of you know. Uh, 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 I don't know the word, but um, inflammatory mm -hmm. things. Certainly he said a lot of things which are really dangerous, but as far as provable stuff that he has done, like impeachable acts, criminal acts, things like that. I mean, a lot of people think of him as sort of like a criminal person, but like, uh, you know, the investigations have yet to reveal anything. Well, what about the proof that, uh, the Democratic Party, um, you know, 
actually did commit these acts of corruption and there's been no noise about it. And in fact, it's been completely swept under the rug. I worry. I don't, oh, sorry, go ahead. I don't think it's been swept under a rug. I think those things were a pretty big reason why she lost the election because the election so was really close and there was a lot of people who were, you know, I was offended by those things. I still decided to not vote for Trump. Because but a lot of people still don't even know about those things. But like but, that's new. Like I talk when I mention that to people, some people are like, oh, really? Oh, like I they mean, don't because it got it actually did kind of the media like it didn't, didn't get the attention of other things but i think it did make a significant difference in the I think, election well, i think so too and especially s- to and, conservatives and, like or, they noticed that or independents that. in the middle who were kind of yeah. deciding between each one so i think there was that and, and I, I think because she lost so that's one of the reasons it yeah didn't get as much it's like okay well that's over now but it's really sad and i do worry that that's going to happen again this time. Uh, yeah. I even heard these pundits the other day saying, rumor has it if Joe Biden doesn't run, Hillary might give it another go. And so people ridiculous. just acted as if that was legitimately a good idea. They're like, wow, that's interesting. And I'm thinking, you know. Third shit. time's a charm. No, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, no, I know. I, and I don't have a lot of love for Hillary Clinton. So I, I definitely don't want to sit here and debate. Like if she, I do think, she would have not uh, let the tone of the nation get quite so savage. And I think she was so out of touch with the political reality. And I think that she, her and her whole camp were completely drinking their own Kool-Aid. I think they thought they had it in the bag. Oh, yeah. Like I was seeing these weird polls come out right like uh, the day before the election that like 90% chance Hillary Clinton was going to win when there were other polls that were like, Oh, it's like 50 50 and like they thought they had it in the bag they were like planning their i don't think it was just march. them that i mean even like the vegas and the uh the betting markets had her as a heavy favorite i think it was a legitimate surprise to a lot I of people i actually bet on the election and Who, i actually won I, not that i wanted trump to win but, but i thought but my friend gave me two to one odds oh, on a 50 50 chance yeah. i was like i mean i don't want him to win but uh i'll take that i'll take that bet yeah no you gotta, you gotta be smart with your money right yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, w- I wish i had because when there was a uh, 20 people running for the Republican nomination. Our good friend Mike Palate said it's going to be anybody but Trump, and mm-hmm. I said it's definitely going to be Trump, the nominee. Like he's just wiping the floor with them. Yeah. So we bet, and I won. And I wish that I <laughs> put money on him being the president, like uh-huh. a year ago, or, or I mean, you know, a couple of years ago at this point. But um, well, let's use the the last of our time here to talk about Representative Tulsi Gabbard, who is my favorite politician. Um, she's great and she she's uh, not really well known but she's a congresswoman from Hawaii and uh, she's made she's made waves by going by speaking out against the sort of normal biased political discourse brainwashing narrative uh, if I may be so bold as to call it such but uh, I first heard about her I don't know what year it was, but um, it was when the the media and the politicians were trying to garner support for an invasion of Syria uh, and to overthrow the president of Syria, Bashar al-Assad. And there's really complicated reasons we don't have time to go into about um, why they wanted to do that, but it essentially boils down to the, um, their, their, their alliance with Saudi, the United States alliance with Saudi Arabia wanting to build an oil pipeline through Syria and uh, to like cut off the Russians. That's that, that's the sort of like US Russian proxy conflict over Syria is like an oil pipeline. Mm-hmm. It's so stupid. 
uh, it with always like, comes down to the money with the money and you know c- uh, millions of people displaced and um, the the fucking United States was arming terrorists like like legit terrorists Muslim extremists who were anti uh, who wanted to overthrow the Syrian government mm-hmm. so like we're giving the, not ISIS but you know ideologically similar we're actually arming terrorists they're, ca- they're calling them the free syrian army to um to overthrow uh, a sovereign nation and to be fair to all parties we've been doing that both parties oh. have been doing this for a long time oh this is like 20th century american and international. The, and the argument at the time a lot of it was we should be arming them more, and we should have done this sooner. Like and that. this is the Obama administration. Well, by he the way. was fu- he was pushing back against what John McCain wanted to do. He was saying we should have been there years ago. There should be a lot more guns in these guys' hands. And so this is like utter insanity. But this isn't really happening. This isn't really happening in the public eye. It's happening, and a few people are reporting about this. But definitely the mainstream media view in this country. It, that it's not being reported on. So Tulsi Gabbard, a member of Congress, she decides I'm going to go to Syria unannounced and go check this shit out. Uh, and like members of Congress are supposed to report to the government their, their trips abroad. She doesn't. She's just like, I'm going. She goes over there and she's just like walking around in the streets of Syria with her, I'm sure with, you know, security detail and stuff like that. Bashar al-Assad hears that she's in the country and invites her to come speak with him and she accepts and so she goes and she has a meeting with him and they talk and so she because she didn't believe this narrative that because the the whole um motive for wanting to overthrow syria was that he was using chemical weapons on his own people that he's a dictator and you know um he's using uh you know, internationally uh, outlawed arms and we need to overthrow him. That's the sort of like X, that's the sort of um, uh, surface level justification, right? So she didn't believe this and it actually makes no sense that he would do that. Um, But she goes over there. So anyway, it made this whole media stir and um, she got a lot of shit for it. Uh, People like, how dare her like do this and and she what and you could watch it on youtube like um just like google um or on youtube um jake tapper syria tulsi gabbard and you can see all of her interviews from back then of like jake tapper just trying to dig into her and asking her these like impossible like a plus level media questions that will like stump anybody and she just like throws them right back like Venus Williams just like bam mm-hmm. you know and she's so smart and so skilled and she used so they're trying to make her look like a fool by bringing her up on the media she's and for doing this thing smart, yeah. and she is so smart and so skilled she uses the opportunity to expose what the American government is doing over there and to to speak to the truth of how basically we're this military nation trying to take over the world 
and she's not about it. And she's like one of the few true speakers in the government. And she was an Iraq war veteran. She yeah. is an Iraq war veteran. Yep. Yeah. She's a, she's a military vet and she supports progressive values and, um, healthcare. And, um, she was actually the chairwoman of the DNC, uh, when Bernie Sanders started running and she quit her position, uh, to support Bernie as a candidate, which you're supposed to do, right? Because, uh, like, because of the same thing you talked about earlier, yeah. because you shouldn't have this uh, conflict of interest when you're supposed to be a neutral party in this. Right. So she, oh, sorry. She, she was the vice chairwoman. I don't know if I said that properly. She was a vice chairwoman. Now the chairwoman, uh, uh, Debbie, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, she is an old fan of Hillary or old, um, so, uh, longtime friend of Hillary Clinton and the emails the Podesta emails revealed her clear preference and uh, collusion with the Clinton campaign. Now, when that all came out, she resigned like right away. She resigned her post. And then within days of resigning, she was hired by the Clinton campaign. They hired her, which is just like so baffling. It's just like so blatant. I think but, her connections go back to like, Bill Clinton's mm -hmm. kind of day. Yeah, the Clintons are over. Can they please just be over? That's Go what I'm away. saying. When I heard that said on the show the forever. other day, I could not believe it. Like, I wanted to scream at the television. And the media, of course, just acts like, sure, that's a perfectly because reasonable... Because I think they're still reeling because they they need somebody that's still in their camp, even though their camp has already lost the old-style Democratic Party... Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden. I mean, who else do they have? But obviously, in or I think in order for the Democrats to beat Trump, there has to be a, um, a more progressive candidate. And the Democratic Party and the me the Demo the liberal media needs to open open up to that. Mm -hmm. um, and they're just holding fast and kind of like trying to lock down the castle. But I think that's the way. I think that's what the liberal constituency actually wants. Yeah. And you're seeing that a lot. Like um, there's a bunch of uh, Congress races down by me down in Orange County that the candidates are people who have not been involved in politics before. They're brand new. A lot of women, mm -hmm. um, things like that um, are running for the first time and are so far looking really good in the polls. Cause I think there's a strong, um, like people want that. I think they're looking for a leader that, is coming out without these influences and things like that and kind of more of a place they're at. I think it at this point it should be Bernie. I think everybody else is uh I mean he's beloved already. Like he was filling arenas with supporters and I think anybody else I mean other than someone like Tulsi, I don't think it's I mean you can't say it's not her time yet. I mean Obama came out of she's nowhere. She's pretty young. She's yeah. very She might young. be too young to even run, actually. No, she's not. Isn't she 33? She's 37, I believe. Oh, okay. And but, I think you have to be 35. Yeah. And you said you liked her, Chris. Why do you like her? I don't know much about her yet. Uh, similar things to what Finch was saying. Um, she she comes off as very authentic and uh, very smart and not just a, a party line. She uh, actually cares. She seems like she cares. She seems like she meditates, if I had to guess. Yeah, I think mm -hmm. she actually does. I feel She's like very she has... centered. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know her history if she's Hawaiian or what, or part Hawaiian, but she definitely, I mean, she has that, like she says, she's, 
she's in line with the spirit of aloha you could say and like she says aloha a lot just mm-hmm. like as in her interviews which and when but, i heard she was a veteran when i read that part i was surprised too because i just thought yeah she just seems like such a peaceful soul and very intellectual it's very smart and oh mm-hmm. by the way she's also a war veteran and She's dangerous in terms of like, you know, if she enters the race, she's really dangerous to a lot of I hope everyone she runs. else. I hope she runs too. I think that if she runs, she will win. And I think if she doesn't run, Trump will win. All right. I, I got to do more research on her now. So we you think I... Bernie's going to be seen as too old and they're just going to paint him as a communist? And Yes. I don't think Bernie <laughs> can beat. I don't think Bernie can beat Trump. I think, I think you might be right. I think. Uh, last in 2016, he would have beat Trump uh, if given the chance, but I don't think. What's the difference now? Well, I think the way that Bernie capitulated after he lost, he basically just fell. He just fell in. I mean, for all his revolutionary speak, he just kind of like quieted down. I don't know, like. I think Bernie himself didn't expect the kind of grassroots movement that latched onto him. I feel like mm-hmm. that there was this there was this energy waiting for someone like him, and uh, it put wind in his sails. I think more than he expected or realized, and and he went along with it. But I personally like man. So many people were casting this Bernie Sanders Messiah stuff at that time, and. I voted for him over Clinton for sure, but I wasn't like 100% impressed by him. There was a lot of um, valid logistical questions of like, okay, so here, like, I love your ideals, but how do you want to accomplish these things? And he was super vague over and over and over. So I think he was really similar to Trump where they have these ideals and it's on each different sides of your thought. Yeah. And I, I get what you're saying and I agree with you, but I think for people, it's more about thinking they care about my ideals and my thoughts and the logistics, at least in an election, matter less. I think that's true for for younger voters, which is why I think he got a lot of younger voters and not as many older voters, mm-hmm. older Democratic voters, because I think the older people who've been around a while and own houses and know how shit works, they're like, okay, but... How are you going to do that? It sounds like you're probably going to have to raise taxes on everyone. And that that's, I don't know if that's what they were thinking, but that's what I was thinking. I thought that was Bernie's dirty secret was that he wasn't going to just raise taxes on the rich. He was going to, he was either going to raise taxes on everyone or he was going to end up being ineffective and not able to deliver on his promises. Yeah, it was a, it's more of a wish list, I think, that he had. Uh, and I think that will be the hard thing about Trump did cut a lot of people's taxes. So if the economy's good and taxes are lower than they were, then that's a hard thing to beat, uh, really. And yeah, but I do love Tulsi. I hope she runs. Yeah, I hope she runs too. Well, this was a pretty good podcast. We just we flowed pretty good. That was fun. Yeah, that was fun. Thanks for coming on. It was a solid, pretty good. Yeah, it was solid, pretty good. <laughs> Border, borderline excellent. <laughs> Thanks. It could have gone downhill quickly. <laughs> yeah. Thanks yeah. for having us, man. Yeah, right. definitely, definitely. Good to have you guys on. Good to see you too. Yes, you got to come back from Asia and visit often. Uh, we'll see. We'll see how life goes. You you guys can come over there too anytime you want. Fair enough. Yeah. Sounds good, man. All right. Thank you. I'll be back this Sunday with my friend Alexander Sharon to talk about holistic healing. 
We talk about alternative medicine and in particular nutrition and diet and how what you eat affects your health for better or for worse. Uh, we, we tackle a lot of misconceptions that we hold in American society and Western society about health and how some of the, th some of the things in the, our culture and our society and lifestyle are harmful to us. And some of the ways that we can use food in particular as medicine. Um, we talk about some ancient systems of medicine, in particular Ayurveda, and some different perspectives and approaches to health. Some of these systems are thousands of years old, tried and tested, and many of the insights that they have are aspects of health that are not really inter integrated into Western medicine. So it's good to have a conversation about that. And just, um, I had a lot of questions and uh, areas where I don't have much knowledge. So it was fun to pick Alexander's brain because that's something that he's put a lot of time and research into and has been a, a long passion of his. So stay tuned for that. That's coming up Sunday. As always, you can find me on social media. Check out my posts on Instagram and Facebook at Chronicles of a Psychonaut. You can find me on YouTube as well. I'm a little bit behind on my YouTube right now, uh, just from traveling, but I'm going to be working on that this week. So all these video streams will be up on YouTube in short order. And I'm also going to be working on my Instagram more. Uh, I'm not really a big social media person. It's an aspect of creating a podcast that is a necessity. Um, but yeah, I actually barely post on there. Um, but you know, I have a lot of exciting things going on. I'm going to be posting some pictures from LA. I'm moving to Asia soon. So even just for my own self, I want to kind of catalog these things and been trying to get better at um, taking pictures and posting. So check out my Instagram. There's going to be more stuff going on there. I also do um, Instagram stories, which, you know, if you don't know Instagram, you can, there's this little feature where you can post to your story and it's just a short thing. It expires within 24 hours, but I'm trying to just get into the social media more and just kind of make it a daily thing. It's a little bit tough for me, but here we go. So that's it for now. See you next week.